everybody, and welcome back to Critically Acclaimed, the movie review podcast where good taste and bad taste explode. My name is William Bibiani. I am a critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. Uh, my name is Whitney Seibold. I, too, am a critic. And boy, howdy, did we see a lot of films. We saw many a film in 2020, mm. and uh, the problem is we missed quite a few, didn't we? Nobody can see them all. Nope. Uh, I was actually uh, running a tally, and I discovered, uh, as of this episode, this catch-up episode, mm-hmm. I've I've seen, uh, I think, 202 uh, 2020 films. That's a very... That's actually quite a bit more than I got to. Okay. I was still in the hundreds. That's pretty That's mm. pretty damn solid. I'm impressed. Uh, and that does, however, include all the Quibi films that I saw. Oh, that... You so, cheater! That so yeah, doesn't that, 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 that I didn't put those kinda, on kinda, my like, list. Pads it out from five. I didn't like, even include that up to like five to seven more. But okay, uh, I, wow. I, I surpassed two hundred, which is my first time in quite a while. But uh, the point of this episode, however, is not to brag about quantity. Nope. It's to brag about quality. Uh, and, all of the, and perhaps condemn quality, uh, or perhaps condemn. <laughs> uh, the uh, the year-end critical lists all came out. All of the critics began authoring their best of the year lists. We like to wait until January to do that. We like for the mm-hmm. year to be out before we actually start talking about it. Or at least the it. very last week in December, yeah. but whatever, who cares? And it, it doesn't really matter, but... Uh, we want to see as much as we possibly can this before was... we make anything resembling like yeah. an official determination. But this gave us the advantage yeah. of being able to uh, catch up on the lists that most of these top ten... Uh, list makers were talking about. Well, uh, and, I wasn't necessarily scouring them for that, but uh, I was listening to people whose opinion mm. I cared about saying, hey, your list isn't complete until you watch this. Until, so I made yeah. a concerted effort to watch that. So, but this was a chance where I got to do that. So I yeah. got, and uh, there were also two, at least two... Two very big uh, movies. Big, big, like, uh, studio... Uh, effects-based blockbusters that I missed out on that I also got to catch up on. Well, let's talk a little bit about what, what we got coming uh, up on this episode. So again, this is a catch-up episode. Mm-hmm. So we're going to be talking about some of the bigger movies that Whitney and I both missed. And we're going to finally get to talk about Tenet, Christopher Nolan's very, uh, um, well, actually controversial, although it's not really the movie itself's fault. Uh, Tenet, and also... It has a lot of baggage. I'm not yeah. saying it's controversial. But... Yeah, well, the, the, its release was somewhat controversial. Yeah. Some people said it was irresponsible to release it, this giant film in theaters and encourage people to go in the middle of a pandemic. But we're not really worried about that. We're just going to talk about the film. Uh, and also The New Mutants, which is a movie that was finished quite a few years ago and then kept getting delayed, kept getting, getting delayed, and then it was finally supposed to come into theaters and then a pandemic hit, and then Disney said... Fuck it, we don't care anymore. We're just going to release it only in theaters in the middle of a pandemic. Mm. Uh, and so we're so going to talk live, about yeah, that. If you lived near a drive-in, you could have seen The New Mutants. Mm. Uh, it was finally, both Tenet and uh, The New Mutants were finally made available on streaming near yeah. the end of the year. So we were able to catch up on those. Yeah. Uh, and uh, then we're going to talk about a bunch of films that I saw finally because people told me I absolutely had to. Many of these are genre in- films. Including me. Yeah, so not many. Some of these are genre films. Uh, everyone knows that I'm a big like horror nerd. Mm. And a lot of people said, you, you got to see these films. I'm like, okay. So uh, the films that I will be covering, some of which Whitney has already reviewed, will be First Cow, The 40-Year-Old Version, Nomadland, Underwater, and The Wolf of Snow Hollow. And Whitney has a slightly longer list. He's got... Driveways, The Assistant, Swallow, Baccarat, Minari, Beanpole, Never Rarely, Sometimes Always, and Sound of Metal. Uh, Some of these I'm actually still going to try to catch up on before we do next week 
uh, our big best of list. Mm. So I might end up uh, sounding off on one or two of those if they make that list. But uh, we had to record this episode. <laughs> we had we had to cut it off somewhere. So when is a when is a painting well, well, done? We'll, when you stop painting? When, yeah. Well, we'll if we give ourselves like enough time, we'll never catch up. Exactly. It's like I, I wanted to see City Hall. Yeah. The Frederick Wiseman documentary. It's yeah. four and a half hours long, and you, God darn it, I just couldn't. That's a chunk find of time. The time. I we, just couldn't. Yeah. We have to watch a lot of stuff for our various mm-hmm. podcasts. You have a day job on top of everything. I have other responsibilities as well. At some at some point, I just I, w- I was like, oh, do I try to fit in another movie tonight, like just before the podcast, mm-hmm. or do I dare spend some time with my wife and partner? <laughs> so I spent some time with my wife and partner. And the wise choice. So, yeah, at some point, we just have to do what we got to do. But let's just jump right in, because there's a lot of stuff. We're going to spend a particularly long amount of time, I think, on Tenet and the New Mutants, because neither of us have covered them before. And because we've had a lot of people saying, Bebs, when, when the hell are you going to do Tenet? Mm. We saw Tenet. They saw Tenet. Why, why, why can't you see Tenet? And I'm like, because <laughs> I, there's not a drive-in near me. It's actually a pretty long drive. And uh, I couldn't afford it quite a bit of the year. And then... Yeah, and no, just then, kept, time just kept on chunking along. Well, I mean, then, I was able then, to see uh, this last week. Warner Brothers finally untightened their belts about letting critics uh, have access to online screeners. Yeah. <clears throat> which they weren't doing for Tenet when it first yeah. uh, was released. But, um, uh, you know, Whitney and I are in critics mm-hmm. groups, and so we're allowed to see some screeners and things. Mm-hmm. And so finally, we were allowed to see Tenet. And um, it's okay. Uh, no, it's bad. Uh, no, I'm, I'm mixed. It, I'm mixed because th- on one hand, I uh, think it's very bad. Uh, on the other hand, it does admittedly have an a, a confidence to it, like an assured presentation uh, that I couldn't help but get swept up in a okay. few times. It's it's a, a, assured in its chaotic confusion, I suppose. Yeah, and there's something uh, there's something this, just kind of interesting about well, here's here's the movie I will compare it hmm. to in terms of quality, in terms of presentation. Hmm. Michael Mann's Black Hat. But but Black Hat is also quite bad. I know what I said. <laughs> but Black Hat, I, I'm, this is this is that's what All I'm right. going for. Black Hat. If you remember Black Hat, Black Hat was uh, Michael, I think it was like Man's last film hmm. to date, um, and it was about it was a thriller, much in the sort of uh, heat realm in terms of like hard boiled crime thriller. But it was about hackers in the present day. How is the world of crime? Uh, being affected by hacking mm-hmm. and it involves Viola Davis uh, recruiting a hacker played by Chris Hemsworth mm-hmm. and I loved the rationale that the film had where it's like yeah you know some hackers do look like Chris Hemsworth and I'm like yeah so do some checkout guys at my local grocery store but I wouldn't say mm-hmm. it's the norm most people <laughs> don't look like Chris Hemsworth you're calling they, attention to it there should have been uh, some line of dialogue with well, when he's not moonlighting as an underwear model, yeah. he does hacking on the side. Like, yeah. address the fact that he looks like an underwear model. But even though, even though, like, some bits of it were miscast, or the protagonist wasn't very interesting, or there's a lot of things he don't buy, still a Michael Mann movie, the dude knows how to shoot an action sequence. So, on some mm-hmm. level, I'm just watching the film and I'm able to go along with it. Yeah, but well, and when it comes to Tenet, man... There, there was a lot of baggage for this, for Tenet, because... Um, t- Tenet, they uh, refused to delay for a little bit on Christopher Nolan's seeming insistence yeah. uh, because he wanted, he believes in the theatrical experience. Mm. He shoots on film. He tries to do a lot of practical effects. He uh, wants to maintain that. It's very yeah. important that that be maintained. And but he didn't st- want to wait, though. But he didn't want to wait. And 
when or theaters at least the first closed down, then they threw them under a bus. You know, when, studi- say, but, when theaters yeah. first closed closed down back in March, there was some question as to whether or not this would be uh, released. When would theaters reopen? A lot of people said, "Oh, we're closing down in March. We'll be open by July," and there'll be a few month gap, and that'll be a big damage to the movie theaters. But People will come flooding back in July, and yeah. it'll Everyone's save gonna, theaters. Surely everyone will be extremely uh, responsible for a few months. The government yeah. will, uh, we'll in, st- in, in, stimulate the economy, and uh, that will get us through it all. And in July, everything will be back to normal. <laughs> we were really uh, naive. To, I honestly, I will say this right now, and I'm, I'm, I'm not proud of this because mm. it sucks. But at no point did I think movie theaters were reopening this year. No, no, no. Never um, once. Every I, single I heard, step of the way, I'm like, there's no fucking way. I was waiting for the announcement saying, we're delaying everything one year. And I think yeah. Warner Brothers was the only studio to do that. Uh, like, Universal. Oh, Universal. Right the away, they studio. said they Fast said, and Furious next every, summer. Everything's one year. Next That's summer. It. It, was a, it was a month away from uh, coming out. Fuck it. Next yeah. summer, we're not even going to pretend. Uh, but yeah, Tenet uh, was supposed to be the one because uh, Christopher Nolan's films are... They're big draws. But yeah, they, they tend to be big hits. And he has, a, as a filmmaker, has a, a rather sizable and passionate fan base on Twitter. Yeah. Uh, and so, critics as well. This film yeah. tend to do very well. They, get to be, they tend to be nominated for Oscars. They don't yeah. win all the time, but they his, nominate a lot. His films, for the most part, are large, cold, complicated machines. Mm-hmm. Uh, Christopher Nolan is very interested in uh, the mechanics of some highbrow uh, science fiction concept. Yeah, I bring up Michael Mann because I feel like Michael Mann is particularly interested in the mechanics of crime mm. and uh, law enforcement, and he just finds the people doing interesting jobs fascinating, mm. and he knows how to film them, and it's great. And I feel like Christopher Nolan is like that, except he wants the jobs they do to be like time travel and wormholes, right. but he'll approach them the exact same way in this very gritty, mm. hard-boiled, kind of almost heartless fashion. Mm. Um, sometimes it works. I think Inception's great. I think the first, uh, at least the first two Dark Knight movies are great, and I like the third one fine. Uh, you know? the, the third one's my favorite of the of his Batman films. Uh, I do like Inception a lot. Not so fond of Interstellar. Uh, I, I, I don't and, think it works. I feel like he's, uh, he's gotten a little too big for his britches. He knows how to visualize things pretty well, but I think he doesn't know why he wants to. It's like he has a good idea for a good special effects demo reel mm-hmm. or a concept, and he doesn't know how to write stories or characters into them. I think and Tenet is most that. certainly uh, an example of this because Tenet is uh, John David Washington plays a character who is just called the protagonist. How cute is that? Mm-hmm. Uh, who uh, during some sort of botched raid is recruited. Uh, he he died. He seemingly dies mm-hmm. and then he's recruited by Martin Donovan to join this ultra shadowy uh, extra CIA organization. Yeah. And they're going to protect mm. the world and from world war three, but world war three, according to them will not come from nuclear annihilation. It'll come from a strange form of time travel because apparently, and the movie it's like, it doesn't want you to know this, but it reveals its hand pretty quick. So we are just going to have to give you a baseline so mm. we can talk about the film. Uh, because I know a lot of people have seen this by now. Some haven't, so we're going to be a little respectful about some of it. But the gist is, at some point in the future, something really fucking bad happens. There's a war, or civilization collapses, and in order to save themselves in the future, humanity starts sending things back to the past. And how they do that is they basically reverse the flow of time as it relates to specific objects. 
They, so uh, like they'll have a yeah. bullet and it'll go it'll just travel back in time. It looks like it's traveling forward in time, but when you like put your hand over it, and the, the, it, phys- the physics of the thing are somehow reversed. Yeah, and, so like if you put your hand over it, it'll be like you dropped it, and it just pops back up into your hand. So you're moving forward in time, it's moving backward in time. And you meet. It doesn't make any fucking sense. Not especially, uh, But the idea that uh, time travel isn't something that happens instantaneously, that mm. time is always moving at the same rate, whether you're going forward or backward, is kind of an interesting idea. Yeah, because we move forward in time mm. all the time. Mm. It's just at the standard rate, and, so it's uh, not interesting to us. And uh, so people can go into these big sort of rotating door machines throughout the sort the course of the movie, and then they're going backward along the same timeline at the same rate. Hence but the title, their, yeah. their physics are reversed, so uh, the whole world looks like it's moving backwards to them. Yeah, and uh, so the title Tenet is a palindrome. It's spelled mm-hmm. the same way backwards and forwards. And so some of the movie actually takes place in a, pa- a place in a palindromic way where you will watch a whole action sequence mm-hmm. and then later on you're going to rewatch mm-hmm. the whole action sequence again but from the perspective of traveling backwards yeah, no. in time. And I'll admit that's a neat idea. Uh, that's a neat idea. Yeah. Uh, I wish there was something interesting done with it. Yeah. Uh, there's a, a kind of cool looking fight scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a cool looking chase scene. Definitely cool looking chase scene. Uh, but it doesn't take you very long to figure out the the holes in the logic of this premise. Yeah. Like, the the uh, the whole idea is these there are weapons that have been sent from the distant future and they're still moving backward in time. Mm -hmm. And somehow if they're moving backward in time, that makes them more deadly, but it's never really explained why. Yeah. They They say like a backward bullet is somehow worse for you than a forward bullet. Well, a forward bullet will get the job done. What's when, why do you need a backward bullet? If the bullet's going backwards, when mm. is the bullet going to hit the point where it's assembled in a factory? Is the yeah. bullet just going to keep going backwards into like the dark ages and shit? Yeah, like it's not. Is it exist? Are you do exist on your own timeline yeah. or no? If you go through this machine, you can run into yourself going the other way. So yeah. you know, eventually you're just sort of ping pong back and forth. To be fair, uh, it, it's very, very difficult to find any time travel movie that makes perfect sense. Well, I, I, I like what I, I've noticed happening is with this film and with Avengers Endgame, they're mm-hmm. trying to get away from the conventional rules. Well, the the uh, Back to the Future rules, the mm-hmm. essentially causality, going back mm-hmm. in time and changing something. Now, causal or Terminator, where there's like all these causality loops. You were trying to go back right. in time to prevent mm-hmm. a thing from happening in the future by screwing with the past, mm-hmm. and the problem with that is that you end up with a, a multitude of paradoxes, and then nothing makes any sense. So they're they're trying to cover up the paradoxes by saying, no, no, causality just isn't a thing. Yeah, there's no such thing as causality in these universes. Yeah, you can go back in time and basically uh, do whatever the fuck you want. Now, okay, that's a cool concept, right? We have this time travel plot. Why does it take us so goddamn long to get to it? Because mm-hmm. uh, John David Washington needs to get to this evil weapons dealer who will eventually learn is played by Kenneth Branagh, but he can't just go straight to him. He has to go to him through his wife, and there's this entire subplot about how the wife is now actually under the weapon dealer's, dealer's control because she misappraised a piece of art, and then they have to yeah. break into something to get the piece of art, but the art wasn't there. It was actually hidden somewhere. And the like, only way to get to her the in the first cared? place yeah. was to bungee jump up a building in order to... Mm-hmm. And it's just... First off, I just want to say, like, right now, it's very, very clear that the basic framework for Tenet in terms of storytelling structure mm. is actually a James Bond movie. And a James Bond movie is bizarrely elaborate, considering how mm. straightforward its thrills are. Yeah. And that's something that we've just come to sort of ex- accept from James Bond, because there's most there are a few exceptions here and there. Casino Royale is actually pretty clear. But mm. 
a lot of James Bond movies, you remember the bullet points, but then you forget all the fucking around in the middle. All these <laughs> completely like, why, why unnecessary is he in this country sides. for now? Why do we yeah. have to meet this guy? I don't know. We could get him as a cameo. Michael Caine doesn't even get out of his chair in this movie. Hmm. Yeah, he's old, but still. That's yeah. like, he's, why even, you don't even need that scene. He doesn't need yeah. to be there at all. He's Although, there because uh, you know Michael Caine. John David Washington says, yo, banana boy. That's a palindrome. Oh, I actually didn't even pick up on that. That's yeah. smiley amazing. Um, and he says UFO tofu or yeah. go but, hang a salami on a lasagna hog. <laughs> uh, the, the, but the right about the structure being frustrating mm. here, though, because we're waiting to get to the good stuff. And they're not even explaining things to him in a way that makes sense. Like, they just literally say, okay, so, uh, yeah, you were part of the CIA. Well, now you're part of this other thing. Uh, all we can tell you is that there's a code word called tenet. And then if you want to like sort of identify another tenet person, you just put your fingers together like this. That's all we can tell you. You don't want to tell him anything. Well, he's got to well, figure it all out on his own. All of it. And, and here, what if, he, what if he comes to, to the wrong conclusions? Here's how you're supposed to tell this story. He's, Okay, something goes really bad, like at, at yeah. his first mission, and he's spirited away, and he's inducted into this super secret spy organization. And there's a, a training sequence, but they can't give him any information. And he goes out in the field, and he finds the weapons dealer, and he eventually finds the weapons, and only then does he learn about this time travel shenanigans. Mm -hmm. The problem is, this time travel concept is so belabored and also so beloved by Christopher Nolan yeah. that they explain it right away. Yeah. And I, and then we are introduced to this notion that there are weapons moving backward in time. Time travel is real. Yeah. And then there's like 40 minutes of the movie where we don't talk about time travel at all. It's not really it's like, the why thing. Why did yeah. you tell us about this exciting concept right away and then do nothing with it? Well, I think and the real issue is that those 40 minutes aren't necessary. Yeah. Just, they don't add anything to anything. And I know if you watch the whole movie, we're not going to talk about every single detail of the plot. But if you watch the whole movie, a few of the things that we've discussed could arguably be explained by revelations that are later in the film. Problem is, we're not later in the film. Mm. Filmmaking is also a form of time travel. Yeah. All right? You are manipulating time. Every edit mm. adjusts time. It extends time. It cancels out time by cutting from one day to another. You are controlling the way that we experience a film in real time. It's one of the reasons why I'm actually kind of... I know some critics are really annoyed by uh, people who like live tweet a movie. Uh -huh. But I'm actually fascinated by it sometimes because movies aren't exclusively a thing you watch and then have an opinion on. Mm. As we watch a film, we are having a million micro-reactions. Reactions to the stimuli of the mm. film. We're reacting to the plot. The character, the music, the references, the things that they evoke and the memories they they heighten. Mm. These are all fascinating things. And the act of making a movie, the act of pacing is an act of trying to manipulate that and keeping people engaged in the film. Nolan is actually usually pretty good at that. Mm. And here he completely loses the thread for a long time. And I think a large part of it is because he's trying to keep a lot of the plot, a lot of the story, uh, a mystery. That will be right. revealed in the second half, the third act. And you can do that. A lot of movies do that. Problem mm. is, is that if you're not going to tell us what's going on, if you're going to give us a lot of seemingly confusing or at least temporarily confusing stuff, mm. and then only reveal what it was later, then all we're going to do is think about how confusing it is unless you give us something that has nothing to do with the plot 
to glom onto. Things like character development. Yeah. And here, the protagonist is literally named Protagonist. And I was thinking about other protagonists in Nolan movies and how most of them are motivated by something pretty human. Yeah, they're... they're, like they're they, I'm trying to save the future for my child by going out into yeah, outer they, space. I'm trying to take vengeance from my parents. They tend to be... Jealousy uh, and ego mm, and the prestige. They, they tend to be uh, wounded men who have had something taken away from them. But that's an emotional start. Yeah. So in Inception, when there's a whole lot of fucking around in the middle there before they finally go into the dream and he's being mm. chased down by guys and you don't even fully know why, for a while anyway... What we know is that Cobb, the character played by Leonardo DiCaprio, is trying to get back to his kids and he can't. Yeah. I can latch on to that. Trying to see my family again. So I'm Protagonist has no such thing. Yeah. The protagonist's motivation in this movie is to be the protagonist. And that is explicitly stated. Mm. That's not like I'm my interpretation. That's just what they say. I was thinking about like, oh, sorry, I'm just going to sneeze here. I was thinking about, like, what we know about protagonists in our stories. And I feel like if... And and, and maybe... I'm just toying with this idea. This is not, like, a critical tenet, if you will. (laughs) Uh, But I'm thinking about, like... I feel like if you have a protagonist in a story, and if the plot didn't happen... You know, Mm -hmm. if if after the movie, you know, if the inciting incident didn't happen, what would you know about the character? Mm. Would you know what they would do with their day anyway would you know what their interests would be anyway how they would what their emotions were what their inner world was like a little bit the stronger care the stronger the character uh the saying goes uh the the more easily you can picture them in any situation exactly they're not a function of the story they are they live um unto themselves and protagonist is easily uh, the thinnest protagonist i've seen in any movie this year it might be christopher nolan finally acknowledging something that we get from a lot of uh, protagonists especially in big action movies Mm -hmm. and that's that they typically don't have a lot of personality they're men of action who only serve to a plot or a bigger story or a world that sounds like Uh, a critique i I don't understand hmm. how he's weaponizing that doesn't seem like a good idea it seems like it's calling attention how bad it is well, it's it's a bad habit, and he's like, well, as yeah. long as that's true, let's just strip away all the pretense of trying to give them personality and just make them protagonists. But that's that's something you do mm. in a satire. Like mm. here, they're they're playing it completely straight. Well, it's difficult to tell with this one because he is trying to play with so many notions simultaneously yeah. that I'm not even sure what the hell he's getting at. Yeah. It's not enjoyable. <laughs> I know it, parts it, of it. It drags along. It there's drag. there's a big action sequence at the end where there's like people moving oh. uh, backward and forward through time. It's like uh, I don't even it, know what the hell's going. Unless I, 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 I don't know what's going on. That's it's not difficult me being to tell an old what their man. mission is. Yeah, there's a whole bit at the end where there's this giant fucking firefight, and there are little mm-hmm. individual bits where I can tell what's going on. But there's also people running around in the background, and I literally don't know what they're trying to accomplish back there. Yeah, I don't mm-hmm. know why they're there. This could have been so much smaller, and it's just big to be big. Mm-hmm. And boy, howdy, is that uh, is that frustrating. Uh, but unlike you, there are things I like about this. Okay. Um, in particular, um, I just want to say uh, Ludwig Goransson's score is really great. Yeah, it's and really actually, uh, kind of daft punky kind of electronic. It's palindromic kind of score, too. Yeah. It's like it's got like a lot of like rise. It's got a lot of crescendos and decrescendos, and that's kind of interesting. And I think it fits the theme, and it it feels really nice. Like it's got a really good um, sort of techno spy thriller vibe, and I thought that set the stage very well and it kind of set it apart from a lot of other films uh, uh, really, mm. really well. Um, I actually think Robert Pattinson is very good in this. Uh, oh, and, and good Lord, what handsome man. The, the, oh, yeah. The, suit, the suits are the best part of the movie. Oh, yeah. Chris, if Christopher Nolan wanted to open like a haberdashery or 
any sort of habit just hats isn't just it? hats yeah if Christopher Nolan wanted to open like a, a bespoke shop, menswear yeah. shop, I would shop nowhere else. Like it was, <laughs> he absolutely knows how to make his his characters look dapper. Mm-hmm. That's totally true, and I actually kind of like that it was a plot point uh, in the film that uh, at some point someone points looks at John David Washington and says, "Yeah, Brooks Brothers isn't going to cut it. You need a fancier suit." Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> I thought that was kind of funny, and they, and they dress him. Yeah, admitting finally once and for all that Christopher Nolan has a fetish for that kind of thing, and that's fine. Um, I wish he'd make a movie about a tailor. Yeah, right. <laughs> like it doesn't need all these big sci- sci-fi. I want to see. I want to see Nolan's Phantom Thread. Let's, yeah, let's just yeah. do it. Um, but um, I think that there are some action sequences that are actually pretty impeccably done, uh, and I got really caught up in them. There's a fight, that car chase in particular. That there's some cool shit there. Mm. Uh, but there's also some stuff that just. Kenneth Branagh is terrible in this movie. <laughs> like, he's a great he's, actor, Kenneth yeah, Branagh. But it's like, it's like, it, okay, so Christopher Nolan, uh, he's worked with Kenneth Branagh before. He was in uh, uh, Dunkirk. It's like Christopher Nolan saw what Kenneth Branagh did in Jack Ryan's Shadow Recruit. <laughs> the one which, that Branagh directed. And yeah, and play also the, played the bad guy. The fun, evil Russian spy yeah, guy. Which is a bad movie. Oh, it's like, quite, it's just, that one's quite bad, it's just, too. Nothing yeah. about that movie really works. Um, from the casting on down, like everything about that movie is just badly advised. Um, it's like he looked at the character Kenneth Branagh said did in that movie, and he was like, "Hey, can you ham it up worse? <laughs> can you be just completely over the top and in the wrong movie? Because that's what I'm looking for." Mm. And yeah. And then Elizabeth Debicki is in the film, and theoretically, the heart and soul of the movie is Elizabeth Debicki because she's, she's trying to get back to her son. Yeah, and and it, she's being held captive by this evil yeah. man. And on one hand, just structurally, I'm kind of offended by that because she's the only like prominent female character in the movie who mm-hmm. has like a lot of scenes and a lot of dialogue, and that's her job is to be the heart in this Captain Planet mixture. Mm-hmm. And frankly, it's a kind of a thankless role. She kind of is just there to be abused by Kenneth Branagh. And she never quite, she kind of gets her, like her mojo back. But frankly, she just feels like a victim of contrived plotting. Yeah. And yeah, it, it and even, even protagonist, even John David Washington is like perfectly willing to screw her over just to get where he wants. So even that doesn't really humanize him that much. And in the end, when it feels like he is kind of like paying her back for all the shit she's gone through, mm-hmm. it feels like just like crossing out the red in the ledger. Yeah. It doesn't right. really feel like there's actual human feeling behind their relationship. It's just like, eh, she helped me out. Mm-hmm. I owe her one. Like, that's what it feels yeah, like. There's... So everything about it feels really heartless. Even the part that's supposed to be the heart. That sucks. Uh, yeah. Uh... I like Elizabeth Debicki. She's great. She's, she's good in this movie. Every yeah. individual in the cast yeah. is good. Robert Pattinson plays like another like spy type guy, but he's got wit. Yeah. Like he's funny. He's actually, he injects more, more life into the movie than literally anyone else. Like he's trying really, really hard. I know there were interviews with the actors asking like, what is this movie about? And none of them really knew. Yeah. I think it only makes sense in Christopher Nolan's mind. I think it's a math problem. And... I was thinking about this. I was mm. trying to, I was trying to illustrate like, because a lot of people, when I put out a couple of tweets talking about what I didn't think worked in the movie, a lot of people were just like, well, no, it makes sense. These things happen. And I'm like, yeah, 
the things happen in the movie, but that doesn't mean they're presented well. Mm. And like the analogy I came up with, and I and I think it's quite apt, uh, is imagine you're taking a math test, okay? And in the math test, they say uh, problem number one, okay? Mm. Uh, one car uh, leaves City Hall driving at 70 miles an hour. And then another car uh, chases after them, driving 80 miles an hour. The first car has a 10-minute head start. How long until this first, second car catches up? You just put a car chase in that math problem. <laughs> Did we have any reason to give a shit? No. The reason is to solve the math problem. And I feel like that's tenant. I, I feel like it's more... The, the, the strange metaphor I'm going to go for is that it's more like uh, Christopher Nolan is an expert watchmaker. Okay. And he has constructed every single piece of a watch... And has laid them out on black velvet, all in this very nice, aesthetically pleasing way. And he says, don't you like that watch? <laughs> that's not a watch. That's a bunch of pieces that look very nice. But I but would, if I, I would but if prefer I shoot something. It, yeah, but it, if, look, I, if, if I shoot it backwards, you'll see me assemble the watch and then you'll have a watch. No, that's not that's, how that works. No, I won't have a watch. You took one apart and now it's yeah. just in pieces and I can't appreciate something you're trying to construct because it's not ticking. There's not yeah. a machine here. You just put a bunch of pieces on a on a yeah. blank space in front of me. Uh, but and and yet it's not a, a complete thing. And yet, because and I think it's largely, honestly, I really do think a lot of the reason I was able to get wrapped up in this movie. There's three reasons I was able to get wrapped up in this movie. Mm. One, Robert Pattinson. He's really good. Like he's he such really a charming, good. wonderful actor. I, I want to see him do more stuff, and he is, thank goodness. But, like, I don't want to see him get bogged down with too many franchises. I want to see him just go. Mm. Um, well, he's doing Batman so he can do, like, 15 high lifes. You know? Hopefully that's the case, yeah. yes. Um, so he kept me invested every time he's on screen. Uh, the action is kind of exciting, except until the end when it's just pointless chaos. Uh, but I honestly think that the majority of my investment in this movie was Ludwig Göransson. Just the score. I think he ties it together very well. I okay. think Ludwig Göransson is because that's what a score is a lot of the time. Mm. It's adding the inflection. It's not just telling a campfire story. It's shining a flashlight under your face and doing it and adding that level of creepiness. Mm. I feel like Ludwig Göransson is telling the story better than Christopher Nolan is, <laughs> or at least yeah. he's telling a story of a better film. Like maybe he got a better script. I don't know. I just made that instead because it's it's a good it's a really fucking good score. I will say that it almost saves the movie. Exactly yeah. the score for me, but uh, yeah, it's not very good. But no, uh, let's ten, yeah, Tenet ten is a big old goose egg for me. I just yeah. didn't enjoy that one at all. All right, well, uh, let's talk about another movie. And this movie has much like Tenet had this big story around like how it was, you know, whether it was going to get delayed or whether people were even going to see it, and then mm. no one really did because again there was a fucking pandemic and everyone's got kind of egg on their face. Uh, New Mutants was a movie that was intended to be. Uh, part of the ongoing X-Men film franchise. And then the X-Men film franchise ended and they were like, oh shit, we still have this one and we never released it because a uh, lot of bullshit. A lot of like... Le legal stuff. Well, I don't think it's legal stuff. I think they just, there were there was re-edits and plans for reshoots and then they didn't even bother doing some of them. And so it just turned into this post-production fiasco and then the movie kept getting pushed back. It was going to be released and they're like, yeah, we'll release it another time and maybe we can make more money. And then they're like, yeah, let's not. <laughs> and then I think it was done in like, it was originally supposed to come out in April 2018. 
It's been delayed a long time. That's a long, yeah. long time. And that was like when Disney was officially acquiring Fox. And so do we release it now or do yeah, we wait so for it's... Disney to do it? And then Disney's like, yeah, but we've got all these legal requirements where we have to release it a certain way and we'd rather not. And then it just never seemed like it was the right time for this movie. Um, it's directed by Josh Boone, Josh Boone, who did The Fault in Our Stars. And the idea behind this movie is that it's not a big, giant action movie. It's actually a small, intimate horror story about a bunch of very young mutants, superheroes who were born with their powers. And I actually really like the premise here. I grew up with the New Mutants comics, so I'm very familiar with and this the, and the specific story it's based on. The, the New Mutants came out, I think, in like the comics came out in the early 80s, yeah. if I recall. And uh, yeah, they, that the title, The New Mutants, referred to a new generation of X-Men. Yeah, they were just young, they were teenagers, they uh, were inexperienced. Uh, the premise that the movie focuses on, and I think this is actually a really good idea mm. based on the the lore of mutants, is that uh, the majority of mutants aren't ready for their powers when they manifest. They manifest at mm. a time often of great stress or great emotion or uh, just puberty, just randomly. And a lot of people have superpowers that are dangerous. Well, so what... sometimes they end up hurting somebody. Mm. And then all, now what you've got is a teenager who accidentally committed an act of violence and mm. is dealing with PTSD. And that's mm. the premise of the story is here's a bunch of mutants who, when their powers manifested, it was an incredibly traumatic incident. And now they're basically in group therapy together. Yeah, what, what I appreciate is that uh, superpowers as they've been presented in comic books over the years are destructive things. Yeah. People who shoot laser beams out of their bodies and blast holes through stuff or knives. They, they typically are, yeah, su superpowers are, are typically tools of violence. Or, and, uh, or at least very easily could be. Yeah, and uh, I mean, w what other use does having eye lasers really serve other than you know, exactly. shooting gigantic monsters? True, but then uh, there's a lot of ones which, are, which could be completely benign. Like I turn into a wolf. Okay, I, then I'm just am a wolf. I don't have to hurt anybody. I, I suppose. Like, I suppose not. Them, but, you know, but you're a fucking werewolf, so yeah. it's it's a that's another or teleporting mo monstrous thing. Teleporting yeah. could be completely benign. Te teleporting is just useful. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I wouldn't be a superhero. I just get around better. Exactly. Uh, but my point is, is not every one mm. of them is exclusively violent. Mm. Yeah, but a lot of them are. Uh, yeah. But yeah, for the for the most part, uh, the superhero superpowers that you have, all these power fantasies, are about the power to wreck stuff. And this is a film that, yeah, I, I appreciate the idea that kids have these superpowers that can destroy, and they have destroyed, and that's a problem. Mm -hmm. It's a problem for them psychologically. Um, this has the exact same uh, same setting as the movie Glass. Yeah, actually, I was uh, thinking that. That, that is, yeah. it's an empty, insane asylum, an empty, abandoned, insane asylum. With only a handful of actual patients. Yeah, and, and there's five patients and the doctor and we don't see anybody else and i'm sorry that's very poor staffing it's one doctor <laughs> she's got a what, what happens when no, she's to, asleep whatever they're gonna spread out you need at least someone keeping an eye on all of these kids who no, have weapons of mass destructions in their dna like she does have superpowers uh she can like form bubbles around the them. force when, fields when, yeah when they uh when they misbehave uh but we're introduced to uh a character who um She's Cheyenne Indian. Mm -hmm. Danielle Moonstar. Uh, and she's played by an actress named Blue Hunt. And uh, she uh, experienced something really traumatic, but we don't really know. Some mysterious yeah. event that took the life of not just her father, but the entire reservation where she was living. Yeah. So she's been uh, taken to this uh, asylum where she gets to meet 
uh, Maisie Williams from Game of Thrones, who's a werewolf. Basically, yeah. Uh, we get to meet uh, a hen- handsome Brazilian bloke whose uh, powers he doesn't want to talk about because mm-hmm. something uh, dramatic happened. Mm-hmm. And we meet uh, Kentuckian Sam, who uh, was down in a coal mine when his body essentially turned into a missile and like collapsed the mine and killed a bunch of people, including yep. his own father. Uh and I think, oh, and then there's then there's Anya Taylor-Joy from Queen's Gambit and Emma and a lot of things. She's like rising star she's, status right she's now. And she's so fucking talented. She's great. She, she's oh, an she's, absolute she's really, really wonderful. And yeah, and she she plays sort of like the queen bee of the, the, mm-hmm. she plays, the group. She plays Angelina Jolie in Girl Interrupted. That's who she's playing. She's, oh, okay. in many respects, she's, have you not seen Girl Interrupted? No. Oh, okay. She's, uh, in many respects, she's the most damaged psychologically mm. of everyone there but but she's, she's also the like the meanest she's the meanest the... and she's the most confident and mm. she's the most like in control mm. of like her persona and her sexuality and um she's and uh, her abilities are actually weirdly complicated and the movies the movie doesn't really get into them much and even she, in the uh, comics they were weird she has the ability to not just like manifest uh, like a magical sword mm-hmm. but also she can dip into another dimension the idea for brief periods which allow her to like kind of teleport and it's not really clearly explained in, in, the, in the comics and I'm, and I think th- this might have been adjusted since I stopped reading comics but in the in the comics how it worked is and in the comics she's Colossus's sister okay and she was a little girl and their powers. Yeah, she has a very moose and squirrel Russian accent. Yeah, movie. very broad, which does like Colossus. Mm-hmm. Um, in the comics, uh, she was a little girl, and then her powers manifested, and she can teleport. However, she doesn't just teleport instantly from one place to another, like Nightcrawler. Mm. Uh, she teleports by going into another dimension and then coming out the other side. Problem is, the dimension that she teleports into is basically a hellscape. So the first time she dropped in in the comics, she disappeared for a bit and then emerged as a really fucked up teenager hmm. and the sword thing that's not her mutant power that's just her having to fight off demons to survive in there <laughs> so that's something she just it's picked a, up in it's uh, a separate thing okay and that's, and, a, uh, that's a big old can of worms that the movie doesn't deny it's it's in there but they also don't want to get into it she also has like a, a golden compass spirit animal mm-hmm. uh that actually like comes to life at one point uh and they yeah. never explain how that works no at all no, i was no. excited actually because um that's a bit of a spoiler but who cares um lockheed the dragon has been mm. like uh like an x-men mascot for as long as i can remember he's usually yes. uh like the pet of shadow cat as opposed who is, to who's played by elliot page in x-men uh, three uh x-men three and then the uh, days of future past Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they came back to that. Um, but, uh, yes, but that doesn't fit anymore, so giving Lockheed to Ilyana, mm. fine. Um, <laughs> who cares? It's, it's a little it's, dragon, it's, it's not, I was, I was I was kind of excited to see Lockheed show up. I liked, I liked that character <laughs> as a kid, so All I'm right. like, hey, it's um, Lockheed! That's cool, I didn't know they were putting Lockheed in this. But yeah, this, this is a psychological study. I actually appreciate that they're not in a rush to show off the superpowers. Yeah. There was a really obnoxious scene in X-Men First Class where they essentially just gather in a courtyard to show off what they can do. Yeah, it's such a, So they can just use those powers later on. It's such a... It's a if the scene feels like it was yeah. written by a junior high schooler yeah. who was just like, I uh, can do this, and then we're just gonna so play they, X-Men right now. They, they kind of, like, held it back a little bit until uh, a lot of the psychological damage that they were suffering actually started to manifest itself in the real world, and something was causing this, and they know it had something to do with... Uh, the the new addition to the group. Yeah. Uh, but... um, the idea of the movie basically mm-hmm. is um, 
and and the audience figures this out way quicker than anyone else. So this isn't a, a, a reveal. Uh, is that uh, yeah, Danny's superpowers is that she manifests other people's fears and their traumas, yeah, and makes them physically real, which is a very dangerous superpower if you can't control it. And it's, and especially to put it in in a place where people have suffered a lot of trauma. Yeah, that's actually like, and that's and that was that was the premise of the original. And you know what? That's a really really great idea. That's uh, and so the idea of the movie is that it's basically a horror film set in a superhero universe. Also a good idea. You might notice that when I compliment this film, what I am complimenting are the ideas. Mm. Because the execution blows. The execution I don't think mm. works. I think the execution yeah. is very perfunctory. Uh, it's hard to say how much of that is post-production, mm. whatever. But um, I'm actually really frustrated with how poor a horror movie this is. Because I think the horror elements are not interesting. I don't think they get into the psychology of the characters. I don't think they actually like visualize in a cinematic way uh, the space around the characters in order to evoke the feelings that they're supposed to be feeling. So when someone encounters something that's scary to them, I am intellectually aware that it's scary to the character, but I in no way am I feeling what they're feeling. No, And this... I think that's the trap of this kind of story yeah. where like you bring people's fears to life. You have to make the audience mm. feel it too. And the movie never does that. Kind of like the kids in It, for yeah. instance. It um, Chapter 1 is a good example of them actually uh, going overboard trying to make sure you feel the fear. Yeah. I, I feel like this is more of a, a, just a light teen psychological study. You mentioned Girl Interrupted. And I think it's a little it's bit... not that light, but... It, 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 this was from the, the maker of The Fault in Our stars yeah. and and this is a little that's a little bit more about uh teen drama than mm. uh real life emotions as it were it's like fake melodrama yeah. version of teen life and i feel like that's this is the superhero version of trauma they're not delving into real trauma they're delving but into superhero it would have been more effective if uh, they had a little bit i think that's my problem. Maybe so, but if you're dealing in a, if you're living in a superhero universe, I think going this far is actually good enough. Mm. And uh, I think there are some some good scary moments. There's some monsters that show up later on that scared the bejesus out of me. There's a, there's a uh, couple, there's a one scary bit with those monsters where they look like they're about to give a guy a back rub, and the guy turns around and it's like, ah! yeah, that yeah. one was that was just, a good. Just, just the, the second that was the good. look and the design and the realization of those monsters they're I thought okay. was really cool. And then there's the just gigantic monster uh, during the climax. I, I, I don't do, like that I, gigantic monster. I, appreciate... I think it looks too cute. <laughs> it looks cuddly to me. I, I appreciate that it was just about these characters and dealing with the things that they had to deal with, rather than necessarily being about a super villain. Even though there is some sort of malevolent force otherwise. But it's not it's not about them fighting a bad guy. It's not like, oh, and Mr. Sinister was there this whole time and is mm -hmm. trying to, to claim them for well, his it, own. Oftentimes what happens in a superhero movie is that the main thematic or mm. character driven crux of a thing peaks and then we still have to have a big action mm. sequence afterwards. Yeah. And if you're actually invested in it, that's where you start to mentally check out. Mm. Here, at the very least, they do have the common decency to because they could have. There's actually like a few threads left open i'm sure they would have loved to have done a sequel when they first planned this mm. but like there's a few threads left that this could have led to a bigger action climax afterwards where they all team up yeah. and do cool things but no actually it knows when to cut and run and i did appreciate yeah, that it, it, uh, i did appreciate I appreciated that. its small scale uh there's a, a 
this is uh, one of the few things I appreciated about Josh Trank's Fantastic Four movie, hmm. which is a piece of garbage, by Mostly, the way. Yeah. It's, it's just a sloppy, rushed mess, that movie. Yeah. And the idea that if you have superpowers and you can now do violence and you are forced to do violence and become a superhero, that would actually traumatize you a little bit. Yeah. That would, that's, that's not psychologically healthy yeah. to be a superhero. And I feel like... The idea that these characters are being cured for the express purpose of perhaps becoming X-Men is something they're not okay with. Yeah, some of them are just mm. like, well, I don't want to be a warrior. Yeah, it's What's like, the... okay, you, you can hone your powers and you can take control of them. I want to take control of them so I don't hurt people. Yeah, I don't want to. I don't want to take control of them and then yeah, and then yeah. go hurt people. So yeah. that there's the, that element was in there that I really appreciate. Like a lot of good ideas. Yeah. There's so many good ideas in this. I just wish they'd been explored more, more effectively, more emotionally, more, more honestly. It, it, it is very light. What it reminded me of, of more than anything was Generation X, the uh, 1996 <laughs> TV pilot. It felt like a TV pilot, which we which we covered a long, long time ago yeah. and canceled too soon. If you Google. Hmm. Cancel too soon with one L hmm. uh, and Generation X podcast. It should come up pretty quick. Yeah. Man. We did um, a whole episode about this. And yeah, th- there was this pilot back in the '90s. It was based on X Men comics, uh, and it was the new generation of X Men. Yeah. And they moved into the X Mansion, and they had to uh, get to know one another as young teens and figure out what their powers were. And, and, and these are big X Men. There's yeah. like White Queen and Banshee and mm-hmm. Jubilee and a bunch of the characters who aren't as popular anymore. But still, <laughs> yeah, they're... those are the big ones at the time. Uh, hey, people know those ones. <laughs> X Men fans know them. Hmm. And uh, White Queen was played by uh, I forgot the name of the uh, the actress, oh, but she yeah. was like a, a like a soap opera star. Well, she was in yeah. uh, she was in uh, Staying Alive. That's the right. She was Saturday Night Fever. Yeah, <laughs> she was also in Staying Alive. She was also a, nice. a dancer in the Apple. She was I actually f- still need to see the Apple. Oh, she, oh tisk tisk. Um, I know it's one of my big ones. Yeah, th- that it felt like kind of a gentle ninety-four minute setup for these characters, uh-huh. introducing what they had been through. Finola Hughes. Finola Hughes. That That's was her name. Of. I was going to call her Fiona Shaw, but that's a different actress. I see how you got there. No, but yeah, as an introduction to these characters, as uh, the characters kind of explore who they are and how they relate to one another in sort of a, a casual teenage sort of way, I think it's pretty effective. And I like there are some conversational scenes that I think do work very well. Uh, mm-hmm. There's a very sweet romance yeah. between uh, the main character and uh, the Maisie Williams character mm-hmm. where they, they end up bonding and kind actually, of fa- kind of falling no, in love, yeah, a little bit. actually and, have yeah. a, a little bit of a romance. And I was going to highlight this. really think, kind of sweet. I think that's the best part of the movie, actually. Mm. There's actually, you know, we were talking about, like, in Tenet, how there's this big chunk of the movie, like, kind of in the early middle, uh, where it doesn't have anything to do with the plot, and it's frustrating because it's just more plot. Mm. It's just unnecessary plot. It's not actually adding anything. Here, I think the best part of the movie is that chunk in the middle where everyone's just kind of getting to know each other. There's some awkward bits in there. I don't understand why Ilyana Rasputin had to be racist. Like she has like a lot yeah, of racial she... slurs against Native Americans, mm. which are just that was completely unnecessary. Yeah, I mean, you could paint her off as a as a mean person without making it really uncomfortable like that. Yeah, but I mean. um, regardless, because again, it's a mainstream movie. Why even put that into the ether? What's the point? Because we're supposed to like that character in the end, and. I kind of can't now. Well, she and she never apologizes. No, right? never. If, she never. She never. If, if there was comes a to... where if there was a bit, it's like, yo, I'm like, that was really horrible of mm-hmm. me, and I'm really sorry. Let's hope. Let's try to work on this together. And yeah, if there's just that kind of moment. Because again, it's a PG-13 movie mm-hmm. for young audiences. There's a certain responsibility where, like, 
yeah, you got to deal with that or not put it in the fucking thing. And it just was, it was off putting and uncomfortable. It takes you out of the scene. It's completely unnecessary. So, uh, so that, that part sucks, but like all that bit where they're just bonding and sharing their trauma with each other. And this whole bit where just Maisie Williams and blue hunt are just like lying in the grass and like looking at rain hit the force field that they're, that they're, <laughs> yeah, they're trapped under, under under this and, big dome, and it's yeah. weirdly beautiful. And for a second, I'm like, See, I, that's where I see the Fault in Our Stars guy, because the Fault in Our Stars isn't amazing, but it's earnest. Mm. You know, they're 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 going for it, and it's it's definitely it's a like slumber party movie. It's an appealing yeah. film, like it's a melodrama, and there's parts of it that are hard easier to take seriously than mm. others. But it's an appealing movie, and I feel like looking here, I think that's I see the same issue here, where uh, Josh Boone really excels at letting young people talk to each other, but. Mm. When the plot kicks in, that's where it starts to ring untrue. And here, unfortunately, the plot is also keyed into everyone's emotions. And he just stops tackling emotions in the middle of the plot. Mm. And um, that stinks. And again, I think it's a really, it's it's a tricky subgenre to work out. The horror movie in which it's a big ensemble cast and everyone encounters their fears. Mm. And you see this in like Event Horizon or Galaxy of Terror or, or there's, there's a lot of films like this. Mm. And the ones that don't work for me, like Event Horizon, which I know a lot of people like, have so many characters and so much plot that we never get enough time to spend with any of them. So that when I see their fears, they're my fears too. Mm. It's always like, oh, they're going through their fears. I'm looking at that happen from another room and I'm, I'm just feeling nothing because the movie isn't bringing me into their inner lives very much. Whereas well, I felt like true. something like it chapter two actually focused so much on the childhood aspects and the yeah. character aspects that when their fears came alive, they were scary to me. But when you were a child, surely you had some of these fears. These are universal things that they're tackling. Yeah, but that doesn't this mean is I not like now. This is not like uh, I, when I was a child, I hated broccoli. Doesn't mean I hate broccoli now. Yeah, but you know they're not giving you a character whose very explicit fear is broccoli and expecting you to understand that because broccoli is not a universal fear, but Mm -hmm. the fear of doing harm to others is a very universal fear. Yeah, and I think 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 the movie the movie handles that just fine. I I disagree because I think just saying, hey, isn't the fear of doing harm to others a universal fear? I will agree with you, but to actually like ignite that fear within me and make me mm-hmm. feel it right now and not just understand it academically. It takes a different kind of craft and nuance. Yeah. And I don't see uh, Josh Boone and again, post production, whatever who can say, yeah. but this is the movie that we got. I don't see Josh Boone building atmosphere. I don't see Josh. No, Boone. He's, he's, I don't not, see... he's not making a horror movie. He's making more of a mystery. The problem is though, it's that structurally it's a horror movie and as a mystery, it's mm-hmm. not very good. Okay. So the, because the mystery is obvious, it's like, there's maybe like one plot point it, I didn't see coming okay. in this. I, so I, I, I wasn't ahead of this one. Maybe I mean, I'm granted sick. I read the story, but I still think it's pretty mm-hmm. straightforward. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't see the kind of expressionistic storytelling that I think helps get one into the psychological state of being of people mm. who are dealing with trauma and what's more dealing with the literalization of their trauma. And so this matter of fact, CW TV look mm. that the movie has is perfectly fine for the teen drama. And that stuff is actually not bad, but the actual story of it fell really flat for me. And mm. I ended up being more frustrated than anything else. It's not horrible. It's hardly the worst X-Men movie. 
but it's hovering around the middle. Uh, it's hovering around the middle. Like, like I said, it's it's definitely like like there's definitely good stuff here. No, I was I, I like was, the young cast. They're they're yeah. pretty solid, you know. And I, I kept hearing how how horrendous this movie was, and I was expecting a fiasco, and yeah. I got a a perfectly decent movie. Okay, uh, you liked it more than I did. I, I did, but you know, I'm I'm also. Um, I'm also on board with that first Wolverine movie. I think that was a, a, a just a go- goofy Saturday morning cartoon Wolverine story, and a lot of people just weren't in the mood for a Saturday morning cartoon there, Wolverine story. There so. are things that that movie airballs so bad, but there is actually big chunks of that movie I enjoy. Yeah, yeah so I'm, like I'm, a, I, I, they, they, mis- yeah. they mistreated Deadpool. So so what? Yeah, <laughs> that, that part doesn't, doesn't really make sense, matter. Though it's just kind of a pointless thing, and it just it's, it's kind of a waste of time. But there's stuff I like in that movie. Mm-hmm. It's it's not it's not a complete wash. It's, I think the only X-Men movies that are complete wash are Dark Phoenix and Days of Future Past and to an extent actually maybe X-Men The Last Stand. The, the, I think those three are just yeah, the, pretty well, the last awful. The Last Stand, Apocalypse, and uh, and Dark Phoenix are like kind of the down at the bottom. Oh, did I say Days of Future Past? You I meant Apocalypse. Apocalypse. Yeah. Days of Future Past has some good stuff in it. But Apocalypse and mm. Dark Phoenix and Last Stand are just pointless yeah, yeah. it just do not work this one has some interesting characters mm-hmm. it's a new approach I, I appreciate that it's actually kind of a low budget thing yeah it's, um yeah again conceptually it, it, rock it deals solid, yeah and, and, and it yeah. deals with powers as if they are a threat rather than uh than a blessing yeah and that's that's a concept that i can i actually really appreciate it's a mixed bag but you liked it more than i did yeah, yeah. all right um okay so now let's talk about a bunch of movies some of these uh may have been covered on the show before by one of us but the other one wants to get a chance to uh Discuss them a little bit. And you've seen a few more than I have, so why don't we start with you? And right. Why don't we start with a movie that... This is a movie I actually saw in 2018. My, okay. Uh, no, not 2018. 2019. I saw this movie in 20... I got all mixed up because the new year and whatever. I saw this movie <laughs> in 2019. Okay. It didn't end up getting released for over six months into 2020. And so now I'm a little distance like, from it. So, so like at a festival or something? I saw, I saw it for a festival, but it was an L.A. screening. So... Okay. Uh, but regardless, um, I loved this movie, but I've just, it's been a while since I've seen it and you've got a really fresh eye on the movie driveways. Yeah. Driveways. Uh, this was, is one of the last films of, uh, the late Brian Dennehy. Um, I think it's the last film. Yeah, maybe so. Um, it's directed by Andrew on and it is about, um, uh, a young single mom and her son who is eight. And how uh, she is doing everything she can to make ends meet. She's gone through, um, we kind of get the idea that she's gone through uh, like a horrendous divorce recently or some kind of breakup. She, mm. The father is out of the picture. She's a single mom, yeah. And, uh, and she has to, and her sister has recently passed away. Her sister was 12 years her senior. They weren't very close. And uh, she's passed away and has left behind uh, a house uh, it's like in the out, like out in the boonies of New York, mm. that uh, is just full of stuff. She was a hoarder. She was a hoarder. She didn't and, realize and this now, when uh, she took on the job of cleaning out her yeah. house. Yeah. And now uh, it's up to uh, this young woman to go in and clean out the house while her son essentially just has to wait around. Yeah, like he's eight. He can't help. He and they don't. They communicate very sparsely, but very meaningfully. Mm. I appreciate the way they talk to one another. It's not about a lack of communication, yeah. the fact that they don't talk a lot. is that mm. they just don't need a lot of conversation to communicate. And and they both understand that uh, you know, she's at the end of a rope. She has an ambition of being a nurse. She's transcribing all the time. So she's really busy. 
And it's not that he's being neglected, but he is bored. He's yeah, not getting any interaction. Boring summer day. Uh, yeah. And uh, when he's hanging around the house while his uh, mom is working, some kids come by. Uh, the first kids that come by are great. They they come by with like a little tea tray, like they've clearly pilfered from somewhere. <laughs> and they run up to the kid and say, hey, do you like manga? It's like, I, I, I guess. That's neat. And then they run off. <laughs> Like, yeah, like I, I want a movie about those kids. That's great. <laughs> those kids are cool. Uh, but more notably, uh, he catches the eye of uh, the neighbor, the the dead sister's neighbor, who is played by Brian Dennehy. He's a Korean War veteran mm-hmm. who uh, one day his friend forgets to pick him up for their bingo night. So uh, she gives him a ride to the bingo night. And he rather quickly becomes very good friends with the eight-year-old boy. He yeah, becomes his babysitter, basically. He becomes his babysitter, but more importantly, they develop a very meaningful regard for one another. Yeah. This is such a sweet, gorgeous film about those little tiny moments that mean everything. Yeah. Uh, little tiny details. Uh, and how things don't need to climax or crest or become a gigantic moment for them to be utterly meaningful. Uh, there's a, a the over the course of the film, the young boy turns nine. He has to have a birthday party, mm. uh, or the mom has the wherewithal to throw him a birthday party. Finds that there's a nearby roller rink, and we'll get a cake. And they go, and just it's too noisy. They're not really yeah. having a good time. Brian Dennehy is invited, but he's too old to go skating. Yeah. So he says, uh, "Let's just go over to bingo night." And the kid goes to bingo with all these other Korean War veterans, these old men. It has the time of his life just talking yeah. to these guys and holding the bingo daubers. And that's one of my favorite things about the yeah. movie is that it understands that like some kids are like old people. Yeah. They're just <laughs> like, I'm just, I don't need to. And, and some, and some old people are like kids, but like, you know, these, this kids, it's not like he's not, he, he's perfectly content. He's content to just be chill and read the paper and <laughs> play board games and stuff. And he doesn't need more than that. Mm. and that's enough for him and to have someone who is on that wavelength that isn't trying to like get him involved in wrestling or something super intense is actually suddenly this is it's an incredibly freeing moment for him because he realizes that there's like a place for him yeah, and a community I mean, for him and it might not be with kids his own age it might be mm. he might be a little he might be an old soul if you will i i but i think this is a, a, a universal thing i think mm. We tend to mischaracterize kids as needing input all the time, yeah, uh, needing to be excited all the time, and that's why a lot of kids' entertainment tends to be very loud and very fast paced. Yeah, you know, a, lot, a lot of co- colorful characters and a lot of thing, you know, big, big kind of melodramatic stories. When I think, you know, you think back over your own childhood, and I imagine there are going to be more vivid memories about the time you were like sitting reading a book. Or mm. playing with a friend just gently out in the street or playing, you know, playing basketball, then there's going to be about, you know, the, the time you, you know, experience this big explosive event mm-hmm. in your life. Uh, yeah, Driveways really zeroes in on the importance of life's gentleness. Yeah. And I loved it. I love I, it. Too. I, I was really, really into this movie. Brian Dennehy is one of those rare actors who gets yeah. to go out of one of his greatest performances. Yeah, that that's this fair. Is a that's great fair to say. Performance yeah. of Brian Dennehy. It is so soulful yeah. and thoughtful, and there's so much like detail that goes into his little actions, yeah. and 
it's just what a what a gift. Although, and the, uh, yeah. One one slight uh, pet peeve oh, is, yeah? uh, and this is something not just this movie does, but. In order to accentuate loneliness, filmmakers will often show somebody uh, who lives alone eating because oh, yeah. they're eating by themselves. It's like, well, if you live by yourself, what the heck else are you supposed to do? <laughs> go out on the balcony and yell at somebody, yeah, I'm having a burrito. It's like, just have a meal. It's I, think, like I think they're emphasizing the fact that his house is empty. You know, he's a widower. Yeah, yeah. Um, he's got kids who are fully grown but, up yeah, and they, they wanted to move in with them. And... F- filming somebody eating alone, I think, is a, a, a little bit of cheap shorthand. But it that's, is, that's, not, a, that's not like a fault of the filmmaker. It's anything. one of those it's shorthand things, though, where it's like, how do we convey loneliness? We portray an activity which for a lot of people is social and mm. we show it not being social. It's it's shorthand. A lot of mm. filmmaking is shorthand. Yeah. And again, you know, the rule that I was given in film school, and I'm not pretending it's an altruism or anything, but I think it's something to keep in mind, which is if you see a cliche in a movie and you're annoyed by it, ask yourself, can you think of a better way to do that? Yeah. And if you can't, you just kind of have <clears throat> to let him cut him some slack. And if you can... Tell somebody. They would love to know. <laughs> they would love to have new cliches. Please, please. We're following the same things over and over again. Um, under On previously did a film called Spa Night, which I'm not familiar with. But oh, I want to go Spa back Night. and see Spa Night again because uh, yeah. Spa Dri- Night Dri- is, I was really impressed with Driveway. Spa Night is uh, more about a uh, uh, young Korean man finding himself in a sexuality uh, mm. in, um, in Koreatown, actually. Uh, in Los Angeles, and um, I don't think it's as mature and assured as this, but it's a very different vibe. So, okay. um, yeah, but I think Driveways is a very special film, and it's a movie that I've been trying to recommend to as many people as I can, and it's not a movie that a lot of people will gravitate to. Yeah. Not a lot of people watch movies for quiet moments mm-hmm. of the elderly and the young finding common ground, but I, everyone, I, as far as I can tell... Everyone I've recommended this to who went out and saw it recognized how special it is. Yeah. I think this is definitely one of the best movies of the year, and I'm really, really glad you liked it, too. And I'm glad you mm. took the time to see it. I'm really grateful for it. Um, I'm going to talk about a film that is actually uh, something you talked about as one of your favorite films of the year. Okay. And I finally got around to it. And a lot of people told me, uh, Bibbs, you can't do your top ten list until you see First Cow. I love me some First Cow. First Cow is good. Um, uh, <laughs> and there's uh, there's even that scene, you know, that that uh, Leonardo DiCaprio meme of him pointing to the screen from Once Upon yeah. a Time in Hollywood. Yeah, yeah. That there's that scene where you can see the first cow. And the, oh, oh, there I, it is. There's I, the cow. I, 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 we literally, I was watching this with my wife, and we literally, hey, there's the cow. There's the first was, cow. And then I was like, okay, shit. So I yeah. tweeted... What, now watching First Cow with a picture of the first shot of the cow yeah. and Leonardo DiCaprio oh, Leonardo. actually did it. Because, yeah, it's been waiting. It's, that was way too long. But we you saw that done with bit. a portrait of a lady on fire. There's the portrait of a lady on fire. Um, but uh, this movie came out earlier in the year. It was right around the time when COVID was knocking all the theaters out of commission. And um, the conversation kind of stopped being about this like sweet, wonderful movie that hopefully remember come Oscar time and more about the pandemic. So... Some people saw it and loved it, and some people just were busy with other things. But now it's available on home video, and you should totally see it. Uh, it's directed by the great Kelly Reichardt, and it uh, is about in the 1820s. Uh, in a, Oregon. In, in Oregon, uh, there's a guy named Cookie. He's a cook. He is like enlisted by trappers and other uh, various explorers, venturers, uh, you know, gold miners uh, to travel with them and to cook for them, to find food in the mm-hmm. wild so that they can eat 
relatively nicely as opposed to just whatever they can fucking get or pack. Although although they don't really seem to care that much. No, but when they talk about it, like, there's a bit with like, okay, Cookie, this morning I want to get some flapjacks, I want to get blah, 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 blah. And Cookie's like, I was able to find her some mushrooms. Fucking damn it, Cookie. Um... Uh, so he's, uh, he's, he finishes his journey and he's stranded and he, uh, he meets, uh, a ma- a Chinese immigrant, uh, named King Lu, uh, who is on the run. He killed a guy and just to watch him die. No, it's not no. that dark. Um, but he killed a guy was not as cut and dry and all that. And, uh, they form a very close friendship and regard for one another. Uh, and, they eventually come to appreciate that Cookie is actually a very good cook. Specifically, he's a very good baker. Yeah, but the problem is, is that in it's 1820, uh, we haven't really, like, populated the west coast of this country, and there's only one milk cow <laughs> in the state, it's, probably. It's about the first cow. Yeah. To come to the Oregon Territory. So their idea is, Cookie is like, I would love to make some biscuits that actually taste good, but in order to do that, I'd need some dairy. Hmm. So they decide to sneak onto the ranch of this really rich guy who runs the town and just milk the cow a little bit. In the and, middle of the night. In the middle of the night. And they make this thing. And, and, they're and, like, also, and also talk to it. Oh yeah, they have a nice time with the cow. Yeah. And, uh, and then... Uh, um, King Lou actually says, this is delicious. We could sell these. And so they come up with a scheme to, at night, secretly milk the cow and then sell their baked goods on the street for an increasingly large amount of money, which makes a lot of sense. Not only is it a delicacy in a place where they don't have a lot, but also people are malnourished mm. and they're not getting dairy. They're not getting like calcium. They're they're actually like, as soon as you take a bite out of this thing, delicious or not, your body is going, yes, more of this, please. Mm. So it's a good cottage industry, but it's also a heist movie. And that's the where I really connected with this. I love this like really <laughs> calm, uh-huh. beautiful, sweet, you know, heist movie about stealing milk so you can make really good biscuits. <laughs> I couldn't get over it's, that. I love that. It, I love that this is Kelly Reichardt's like this is Kelly Reichardt's thief. Well, and this, this is Kelly Reichardt's Oceans Eleven. Yeah, and, just, and this is as, as, as exciting as Kelly Reichardt is going to get. She's an incredibly understated filmmaker. Yeah. And uh, what I appreciate about First Cow is, uh, first of all, it is it does have these sort of like almost whimsical moments that you know the yeah. the whole the gigantic crime in this movie is stealing milk. Yeah, it's not that you know horrendous in the broad scheme of things but it is a crime yeah because the rich people are so resentful yeah it, it, they're gonna uh, get in serious trouble for this so they get caught. this yeah. is a story of like early industry this is a story about how uh early american agriculture is actually predicated by uh a asian immigrants mm-hmm. and b gentle people it's not all about this pt anderson uh, ambition is the thing that's that we're like this soul sucking ambition is the thing that America is built upon. Uh, it isn't. It isn't though because the problem is, is much like any other like uh, crime movie. Uh, once they start committing the crime and start profiting from it, they never just like take mm. their profits and run. It's always like, oh, but if we do just a little bit more, we could buy that nice hotel <laughs> in San Francisco. And you're just but like, it, no, I've seen every crime movie ever. You, stop now. Stop but, it. Stop it. Go, but, go, go, run. But these two men at the core, uh, it's ultimately about how they have a very gentle regard for one another. Yeah. There's no resentment. There's not even a lot of energy. There's just sort of a warmth. Mm. And 
the reason Cookie is sort of not really fitting into the frontier is because he's a gentle guy. You compare him to all of these other beings that he's uh, around, yeah. and there's you know gruff men, uh, mount, mountain men, and uh, these rich uh, erudite assholes who are you know really judgmental and talking about you know oh and yes when I was sailing at the Hamptons sort of conversations. And he, like, they sound like a villain in an American yeah. Revolution movie. Comparatively, he is he's gentle, modest, and just wants to ply his trade. And yeah. I think uh, that gentleness is what I took away from First Cal. Yeah, and so like even just little expressions of greed mm. just pop out. And yeah, this is an incredibly good movie. I, I like this movie a lot. I'm not sure if it's going to make my best of the year list, but mm. it's I, it's a wholehearted. Uh, recommendation, please don't forget it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, end of the year, whether you're like trying to catch up or just want to see a really mm. damn good movie, please go see First Cow because this is an excellent motion picture. Uh, what do you want to talk about next? I want to talk about Minari because okay. uh, I brought up the point that uh, American agriculture is predicated on the Asian immigrant experience, and Minari is a story about that. Uh, Minari is uh, it's set in. Arkansas, I believe. Uh, it's directed by uh, Lee Isaac Chung, and it's about a family of uh, first and second generation Korean immigrants who have come upon financial hard times. They can only get jobs sexing chicks at uh, at poultry farms, mm-hmm. and uh, the father, the patriarch of this family, uh, over the objections of the mother, the matriarch, are have moved to Arkansas and are going to turn a plot of land into a farm. And uh, the idea is they're going to grow Korean produce because, well, there's a lot of Korean immigrants who live in America. And, yeah, there's a market uh, there. Yeah. And there's, yeah, well, there there's will this, be soon once they... Yeah, the, and the idea there. is that the market is, is not there yet, but we're going to give it a start. And this film details uh, very, very carefully a lot of the culture shock of moving out to the boonies, uh, how difficult it is to get a farm started and how the family unit is being viewed through the eyes of the children, uh, very much like driveways, in fact. Uh, and the struggles this family goes through are incredibly real. They're incredibly difficult, and your heart goes out to every minor disaster that gets in their way. Something catches on fire, something mm. uh, you know just doesn't grow correctly, or you know the market shifts a little bit. They do have the uh, help from a local played by Will Patton, who uh, is a little bit of a kook. Mm. He doesn't go to church, but every Sunday he gets a, a life-size crucifixion cross and carries it on his shoulder around town. Oh, and, uh, and in fact, like th- this ultra conservative Christian community is viewed by the main characters as this weird thing that they've never even seen before. Mm-hmm. It's it, you know we get to see uh, Christian conservative middle middle America given the same kind of weirdo treatment that we typically see. Uh, in comedies of the 80s when uh, uh, an American will go to an Asian nation. Yeah. Uh, like a uh, gung-ho uh, comes to mind. In the, the Ron vast, Howard movie. Well, that's the Asian nation coming yeah. here. But like, oh, I, but, I, feel mm. like uh, I feel like often, and it's mm. completely not right or fair, uh, white Christian America is considered the baseline for normal. Yeah. When mm. it's just only normal if you grew up here, just like mm. normal is everywhere. If yeah. you grew up with it, it's normal. So I always appreciate that um, 
I always appreciate when that gets reversed. Yeah. And we get and the uh, same eye for like everything you do is weird. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. everything in this country is really fucking weird. And anything anybody does is weird if you look yeah. at it the right way. Exactly. Uh, and uh, this is also about culture clash because the young children were born in America, the parents were born in Korea, and they eventually need to fly. Uh, their very elderly grandmother out to help look after the children while the parents go to work. Yeah. And the culture clash actually ends up meshing in this really beautiful sort of way as the kids and the grandmother learn to teach one another about uh, what's important to them. And uh, that's where Minari comes in. Minari is is a plant. And yeah. uh, and the grandmother ends up planting these plants like out in this remote area and it becomes this bond moment of bonding between the grandmother and the grandson who is suffering from all kinds of anxieties and he doesn't want to be there. Uh, it, it's, it's just, uh, just emotionally very, um, uh, what is the word I'm looking for? Not, not, not blunt, but it's very matter of fact about the struggles and how this is something that is very common in this country. It's a very American story. Uh, the, the scandal that's arisen around, uh, Minari is that, oh, yeah. uh, it's it, it, as awards bodies are coming to nominate awards. And this is a very good film. It's getting a lot of awards buzz. It's mostly in Korean. So it's only eligible for like foreign language categories, even though it's well, in, in the golden globes, in the golden globes, in the golden globes, yeah. because for golden globes in, in the Oscars, it's best international film. And that's always the idea for what it was. Hmm. But even then there were issues of, is it sufficiently in English? And if so, is it really truly international, which is some weird nationalist bullshit actually. Yeah. But in the Golden Globes, it's foreign language film, and uh, this is an American film made about America. Mm. About a, a quintessentially American experience. Yeah, yeah. And so the fact that they happen to be speaking Korean should be irrelevant mm. to that. But about, uh, about a, but know, like, but the, especially about a quarter the, of the movie is in English, though. But, so. even, even, but here's the thing that bothers me, and I'm strictly, I haven't seen this one yet. I'm bummed, mm. and this is definitely one of the movies... Everyone's been telling me how amazing this movie is. And I'm definitely going to watch this before we do our best of the year episode just to see if I agree with everyone and feel like it needs to be included. Mm. But um, regardless of whether or not you think it belongs in the best foreign language film at the Golden Globes, uh, the fact that it's not eligible for any other category is stupid bullshit. Any other awards. And it all goes to show you for the umpteenth time, the Golden Globes ain't shit. Yeah. Golden Globes but, uh, don't mean anything. They're a nebulous awards body. They don't actually have any particular insights. They're not necessarily... They're, they're, they exist to throw a big party and to get the biggest stars to that party. Mm-hmm. That's what the Golden Globes do. Which they is, don't yeah, mean which, a lot. It's which, nice which to get is, an award. I would, I, if I were yeah, to the Golden Globe, I'd be like... Oh, thanks. Okay, I'll go to that party, I guess. But it's, like, I'm it's not... nice. It's nice to get an award. Uh, a lot of people use them as a predictor for the Oscars, as if the Oscars mean something. But uh, yeah, the, and, uh, and all the Golden Globes really can do is just show yeah. shove more attention onto something. Yeah, and, really, and if, yeah. there's, if, no, there's no overlap. Between if you the like to, lines. if you like to watch on television a bunch of celebrities getting drunk and handing each other statues, which is a good form of entertainment, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, then they're fine from and an kudos, outsider's perspective. And kudos to the executives of yeah. the Golden Globes for realizing the Golden Globes ain't shit. 
Yeah. And just ad- openly admitting, we're Tina, just here to be, have fun. Okay? Tina Fey and Ailey, Amy Poehler, who are two shots in, are hosting yeah. this thing. And it's or just Ricky a, a Gervais, who is openly saying, I don't want to be here. And mm. frankly, and, I don't And I hate I don't, all of you in this room. I, I don't really need you to be here either, Ricky. You're not really contributing a lot. No, but, you're, you're, um, you're just being bitter about this whole thing. Yeah, like, I don't know. Can't you have some fun? But um, but in any case, so it's, so it's really good. So, so it's really good. Yeah. Um, a lot of people are putting this on their top 10 list. I might have to sit with it a little while longer. I do think it's a good double feature with First Cow, though. Okay. Because they're both about uh, the origins of American agriculture resting in the hands specifically of Asian immigrants. And uh, that's something that uh, needs needs to uh, be reflected on. Okay. Well, what, again... What, what do you want to talk about, William? Well, actually, I want you to talk about something else just because you saw a few more films than I did. Okay. So I'm just going to pick a, I'm just going to pick something at random. Okay. Baccarat. <laughs> Tell me about Baccarat. Baccarat is the shit. Uh, it's so good because it's weird. So uh, sold. Baccarat is the name of a city uh, that doesn't really seem to exist. Cool. Uh, it's 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 in Brazil and. It takes place in the near future, but Baccarat doesn't look like the near future. The uh, the denizens of Baccarat are like something out of uh, one of those early 90s uh, British everybody's a kook in this town kind of uh, comedy. One of my favorite yeah. kinds of comedies. Yeah, you're, you're, you're waking Ned Devine's. Uh, no, or, or, that one. Or, or welcome to Whoop Whoop, which is an Australian <laughs> film, I know. But uh, just how how the these, the Englishman who went up a hill and came down a mountain. Yeah, That's everybody's just sort of like eccentric and has their thing. And what what is there in Baccarat? Not much. There's a general store. There's a DJ who uh, throws parties. They do a lot of uh, like trading during the day. And there's a museum about the history of Baccarat. <laughs> And I don't think it's really known for much, but they're very proud of this little township. One day while out uh, traveling, one of the farmers gets followed by a UFO. And Go it's, on. It's a little one, and it looks exactly like the UFOs in Mars Attacks. Like it's a little flying saucer. <laughs> How little are we talking about here? It's, it's like three feet across. Okay. So it's like a baby UFO. Yeah. And, its battery's not included. And and we see its point of view, and we hear in English somebody commenting on, yeah, we're going to get that guy. Something mysterious is happening here. And uh, then some mysterious bikers ride through town, and they're wearing these completely gaudy outfits, and they stop for drinks, and they're up to something. When people try to bring water into the town, they get shot at. Uh, And sometimes we're not really sure who's shooting or why. Okay. Eventually we learn, when Udo Kier shows up... Yay! <laughs> that there's this team of ultra-advanced, high-tech CIA assassin types who have been tasked, for reasons unknown, to wipe out Baccarat. They've deleted it from maps. You can't see it on any, like, map programming anymore. Mm. You can't find it in satellite images. Because that's where they're making the clones mm. to make for the Clone War to fight against the droid armada. Stop that. I'm sorry. Stop it. I'm, Stop. I'm sorry. <laughs> put a coin in the jar. <laughs> Every time you mention Star Wars Episode 2, you have to put a coin in the jar. <laughs> that was a big coin. <laughs> nice special effect there. Thank you. That's just what I had on the table. 
This film is uh, action-packed and will keep you off balance throughout the entire goddamn thing. Nice. Because you never really know what the hell is going on. But it's being presented with so much energy. And I think one of the greatest strengths is uh, the the sort of the kooky denizens of Baccarat all actually are played by... They look like non-professional actors. Yeah. Uh, and they all have a lot of sort of experience on their face. And they have real talents. They look They look really lived in, if that makes any sense. Mm. Which makes them seem less like these sort of weird stylistic versions of humans and more like real humans, which makes the weird elements all the more starkly enjoyable. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it's like, yeah, it's like this bizarro science fiction Western that's like almost Jodorowsky adjacent. Mm. It's it's really, really, really enjoyable. That sounds um, amazing. It's I'm also totally it's also totally my jam. It sounds this like kind of jam, weird but... uh, genre bending kind of uh, kooky surrealist Western uh, yeah. is, is totally up my alley. There, there's, there's your jam mm. in a circle and there is my jam uh. in a circle and then like on one side of your jam there's like Bellatar, and then comfortably <laughs> in the area in which you and I intersect huh. is everything you just described. So I will totally be seeing <laughs> yeah, this film. Definitely see Baccarat. Okay. This is one of my favorite films of the year. It's okay. really, really, really good. That's awesome. Well, let's talk about a film that uh, you again. Most of the stuff I saw is stuff mm. you got to before I did, but I do want to at least prove that I saw it and talk about it because people ask. <laughs> All right. Um, and this is a movie I'm very passionate about as well, and I also think it's one of the better films of the year. Uh, and that's the 40 year old version. Uh, this this is also on my list of the best yeah. of the year. Uh, spoilers for next week. But uh, this movie is one of the best comedies I've seen in a really long time. I still don't understand why it had to have a title that evokes that Judd Apatow movie, which is okay, I guess. But like... I don't understand it, but well, like it's, it's Rada Blank did it, so she yeah, did it. I mean, it's, it's it. I would I would be very very curious. I mean, well, sometimes sometimes filmmakers don't control their titles. Oh, that's sometimes true. titles get away from filmmakers, and I've known a lot of filmmakers when I talked about their titles, they were like, "Yeah, that wasn't my idea." Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, in any case, uh, yeah, it has nothing to do with it. It's just a truly excellent uh, comedy about a woman who uh, she's turning forty. Uh, she had some success early in her career about 10 years ago uh, when as a playwright, but shit happened mm -hmm. and she never got a lot of major productions off the ground. And now she is making ends meet teaching theater to um, unappreciative teens. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if they're like either seniors in high school. I think they're like in like maybe college because some of the school, I think they're in a college they're in a college because the, yeah. the, they're writing their own play and the play that they're writing would never be performed in any high school <laughs> like never everyone would be so fired for letting that go up on stage mm. during an assembly because it's weird and bizarrely sexual and controversial and and i love that she's just like you know what fuck it make what you want because <laughs> she's just checked out mm. she has been pursuing the same artistic dream for so long and it has been so stifling and it is she's met with so much rejection that she no longer has any passion for it. And she's starting to wonder if she has any passion at all. Mm. And what she finds is that she actually has passion. She's very artistic, but she needs to find a new outlet. And the outlet that she finds is in rap. Mm. She's a very good rapper. And she uh, decides to pursue that and decides to pursue that by talking about in her rap, uh, 
issues that affect her as uh, a middle-aged black artist, issues that affect her as a woman, issues that are not really being expressed by the music that she is hearing. And there's actually like, what, what is it? There's like some song on the soundtrack that is like absurd. And it's also the, uh, Rada Blank wrote it as well. About the, the the white man with the black woman's butt. <laughs> no, no, that's what she just. That, no, no, uh, uh, she she wrote a, that's that's a that's a parody song. Yeah, that's it's a, that's it's a, a comedy song. That's yeah. a, that one's intentional. But there's like this one song to to represent uh, the state of hip hop before she got to it. Mm. Uh, there's a song called Pound the Pound Cakes, <laughs> which is a very funny song. Mm. Um. So, yeah, it's about her finding her voice and about her being, like, pulled back into theater at the po- at the possibility of compromised success. Um, it is uh, a very sweet, understated love story about her actually, like, starting to fall for the guy who actually provides the beats to her music. And this guy doesn't really think anything of her because he doesn't think anything of anyone. All he does is provide the beats. But when she performs, he's like, shit she's actually like telling stories and stuff mm-hmm. and she raises his standards for the other people who come into his studio and record which is maybe my favorite scene it's like have you tried storytelling what the hell <laughs> um i love that this is shot in black and white and it doesn't feel like an affectation it doesn't feel like mm. we're just doing this it's like mank is shot in black and white because we look it look like an old movie and no. it's really just kind of showing off this is shot in black and white because it makes new york feel unromanticized but still mm. still full of beauty but yeah. it doesn't have it's not shiny yeah it and feels very lived in it feels like the, it feels like my favorite new yorks and this is when i visited new york this is the new york i see mm. my favorite new yorks are the new yorks of like abel ferrara who just understands what just it looks this is like what the on city the, looks this like. is just what yeah. the city looks like i'm not trying to sell you a ticket I'm not trying to get you to vacation here. I'm not going to play Rhapsody in Blue. I'm not even trying to make it look horrible. I'm just telling you what it fucking looks like. (laughs) It's almost like New York is a character in the movie. I know, right? But in the 40-year-old version, there's just something about... I'm desperately in love with movies that know a place so well Mm. that when they film it, you feel like you're there. You don't feel like every shot has been specifically found for its perfect angle or just the right building yeah. to have in the background. It just looks like you fucking live there. I felt and that I way about, about that film Tangerine. Mm. That that's, that's what Hollywood looks like okay. in that movie Tangerine. Yeah. Um, I also really like about the 40 year old version is uh, it's a- about um, her wrestling with racial politics. Yeah. Uh, and how uh, she is trying to tell uh, uh, the type of story of just ordinary people, ordinary mm-hmm. black people. Yeah. But to the benefactors who are all white, uh, they're not comfortable with that kind of story. Yeah. And they keep on asking her to do these big showy things like the musical about Harriet Tubman. Yeah. And, uh, or, or if you're going to show, uh, you know... People of color living in New York, you've got to turn it into poverty, po- uh, poverty porn. Yeah, yeah. you know, where it's and like look, the, look at how that term in the movie. Look at how miserable they are. Mm. Isn't that entertaining? And we got to make sure there's a white mm. person in there to like learn a valuable lesson mm. and therefore distract attention from the people yeah, we're here to and, see. And, and you just see how every bullshit Hollywood movie about race gets done in by the development process. 
And, and how uh, she feels completely cheapened by the fact that her own blackness is being litigated by these white money makers. Yeah, monetized. Yeah, you know yeah, what? If all, the only aspects of her, uh, of her personality, of her culture, of the yeah. color of her skin that they care about are the parts that they can sell, and not just sell. But sell to rich white people who don't understand her. Exactly. Yeah. And so, that the, and that and that's the crux ooh, of it's the, infuriating. Uh, yeah. It's infuriating, but it's also the crux of the drama, and it's also very real. Yeah. It's, and and I, I imagine it's something that Rada Blank actually went through, because from what I understand, this film is semi autobiographical. Yeah. That's my understanding too. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. How, I don't know how yeah, she, true that is. She's but to an extent, great. That's true. Yeah. She's hilarious. The yeah. movie's really funny. She wrote and directed it, yeah. and it feels. Everything about it works. Every time they break the fourth wall, which they do a couple of times, it's perfect. Mm. Um, every time that they just want us to be immersed in the reality of New York, it is perfect. Every time they want to slip into something a bit more fanciful, it's completely earned. Mm. Um, this is the kind of New York movie that I think, like, I feel like movies like, I don't know, like Manhattan or something are like aiming for this. And I feel mm. like this is it. Oh, this okay. is New York. This is the this is the kind of story about artists finding their voice. That is incredibly funny, <laughs> but incredibly moving and incredibly thoughtful and incredibly meaningful. Yeah. And this is a really fantastic film and I hope a lot of people are seeing it. It's on Netflix mm -hmm. right now. It's been there for a while, but it didn't get a lot of attention when it came out. It got some. Got a lot from me. It got a lot from me. I, I give it a rave. I, there's quite a few critics I know who saw it and really, really mm -hmm. liked it, but it's not one of those things that became like a cultural zeitgeist thing. Like, oh, did you see Witcher is on Netflix? Well, like, no, just it's like a lot of Netflix yeah, thing. It came, people noticed it, and then it kind of, we some people moved on. Moved back, move back is what I'm saying. Move back, watch this movie, watch how amazing this movie is. Please, you're gonna love it. It's one of the unusual things about this year is that yeah. the zeitgeist we has been dictated by how fast it moves on social media. Yeah, uh, things don't stay in the consciousness as quickly when they're not dominating theaters and breaking records. Yeah, it's been a, a fascinating thing to observe. Okay, uh, what, what do you want to talk about next? Um, hmm, what do I want to talk about? Let's I talk about that. Swallow. Do it. Just randomly. I'm going to talk about Swallow. Do it. Um, this is a film uh, about a woman who uh, previously was uh, very impoverished, but she's married rich. She's uh -huh. uh, married a very, very rich man. Uh, she gets pregnant, and her life, uh, in this very stylized fashion, is very uh, sterile and very devoted to uh, just... Conspicuous consumption. She needs to set up the house in such a way. She needs to throw uh, parties in such a way. But when she gets pregnant, she becomes inflicted with this very uh, bizarre desire to start swallowing things that aren't food. Uh, things like pins or rocks uh, or paper clips. Uh, eventually it gets to be much, much larger stranger items. And she, they'll pass through her system and she'll collect them and keep them in a, a case. Okay. And, and it's about this compulsion she has. This is actually a very real thing, uh, from what I understand. I looked up a little bit about it. Evidently, it inflicts, uh, when it does occur, tends to inflict pregnant women, although not, not, not always. Affl excuse me, afflict uh, pregnant women. Uh, this idea that you just need to have these, uh, these things in your body. 
and yeah, it, and the body she craves and she whatever it's craving and on. she explained and it's it's such a stylized film it almost feels like a dark comedy for the first half of it mm. where it's like how weird that she's swallowing a pushpin and like is that doesn't yeah, feel safe. And, and is no well it, it pushpin feels very dangerous yeah it rips up her insides and and wow. there's there's, there's blood horrifying. involved and it's pretty pretty gross and um and we get to see it uh, first through this stylized lens as this almost uh, surrealist form of rebellion against these uh, conspicuous consumption prisons that she's found herself wrapped in. Uh, but as the film goes on and we learn a little bit more about this condition and about what it's doing to her and how she came to that via how coldly she is treated by her husband and her in-laws, we actually start to peel back and see something real, very real and psychological beneath this and what has caused these kinds of compulsions and how it relates to her own family experience. Uh, I dig it. Okay. I dig how uncomfortable it made me feel. Interesting. Uh, yeah. When, when she's like trying to swallow entire screwdrivers and stuff, uh, it, it'll, there's a very visceral thing about that. You know, we can, we can kind of imagine that, right? Maybe not swallowing, a. a screwdriver for ourselves but we can kind of picture what that might feel like or you know yeah, what that might look like dying mm-hmm. and and she she does go into surgery at one point because she swallowed something that's a the thing little, that i'm curious bad. about because i feel like there's a couple of different ways you could go with this uh-huh. like you can, and i'm curious i don't want you to ruin the end anything but tell me the tone mm-hmm. for, for people who are going into it because like there's like uh todd haynes's safe Mm. where uh, Julianne Moore becomes convinced that the world is so full of toxins and dangers that she begins to retreat further and further and further away from the world until it becomes ultimately kind of a tragic little horror movie. Uh-huh. Uh, or there's ones where, like, um, oh, what an interesting period of my life. Um, you know, it had its ups and downs. And then there's ones where it's cute. Mm. Where where about on the tonal spectrum does that fall? Well, it, it starts out on the, the cute thing. It's like, yeah. I, I said, it it plays like almost a satirical dark comedy after. Right. Uh, but a dark comedy can be bitter mm. or it can be ultimately very kind. It's a matter mm. of, you know, how, how dark well, is it going to go is my yeah, question. Yeah, it, it feels like it's, it's a little bit like trying to make you squirm for a little bit. Almost... I recall it being sold as kind of like a horror movie. It's like, oh, I'm just going to start swallowing things. How weird. And this thing's yeah. going to take over her mind. Uh, it felt like they were trying to sell it like a, that movie In My Skin, which I bring up pretty frequently. Uh, the Marina Duran film from the early 2000s where uh, she uh, self-harms in an addictive sort of way. It's a film about how she kind of becomes completely detached from her body and, uh, and starts self-harming in, as, as if she's an addict. Um, and this is the same sort of thing. She starts doing these things that uh, she knows are harmful, but she feels complete when she does it. And she actually speaks about how comfortable swallowing these uncomfortable items makes her feel. And eventually it becomes a pretty sensitive about what she's gone through and why she actually has to do that thing. So I, it actually earns uh, both of those tones pretty well. I dug okay. it. I dug it. I liked it a lot. Oh, it sounds really yeah. good. Okay. Uh, well, let's move on to a film uh, uh, we'll talk about when I've seen. Uh, this is a movie that is being declared pretty far and wide one of, if not the best films of the year. I finally got around to seeing Nomadland. Oh, the new Chloe Zhao joint. Yeah, and I actually hadn't seen any Chloe Zhao movie. This was actually. my first Chloe Zhao film. Yeah. She did a film, uh, I think it was two years ago, called The Rider. Yeah, everyone was Which got, got a lot of acclaim yeah. and I still haven't seen. Yeah, I feel bad about that. Um, so this is a film that stars Frances McDormand uh, as a woman who 
she was married. Uh, she was living in a nice, uh, reasonably nice house with her husband and like a town that had built up around like a corporation and built like a factory and everything. And then um, he died and then the factory died and then she lost the house. And now she is basically just driving from town to town in the desert, basically. Um living in one trailer park after another in her big van, which she has tricked out to be, and not in like a cool way, but in like a, just a practical, practical way, way. Uh, tricked out to be the place where she lives. Uh, and she is just basically just getting by. She'll work for Amazon until the work dries up in the off season when people aren't buying as many products. And then she'll go drive around for a while and then she'll find a gig taking care of a national park for a little while and just working there for a bit. And then she'll move around a little bit more and start working in a crappy restaurant. And then she'll move back to Amazon. And along the way, she meets a lot of people who are living basically the same life. Mm -hmm. uh, we recently on an episode of our Patreon podcast, only the best reviewed uh, the grapes of wrath. Mm. Grapes of Wrath is a film that is based on a Steinbeck novel, and it was about migrant workers in the 1930s in the Great Depression. Uh, the Dust Bowl had ruined a lot of the farming in America, and now people had lost their homes, and they were driving around, living out, in, uh, out of their cars, if they were lucky enough to have them, and just driving to wherever the work was. And John Ford shot that shit like poverty porn, to yeah. bring up that term again. Um some people love that movie. I respect that movie, but it's pretty fucking heavy handed. Yeah. And I feel like what Chloe Zhao is trying to do is focus on the modern equivalent of that without being heavy handed about it, with actually being very subtle and very mm. um, sensitive about very it. Very yeah. sensitive and not judgmental. Um, even at times when I think she would have every right to be, because let's be honest here, here are people who are being exploited by a capitalist system mm. uh, that absolutely could pay them enough to not have to live this way if they didn't want to and they're just not yeah um and I'm, i was a little frustrated that the movie never dealt with that like at all but the focus is basically just well, on Frances mcdormand and how she feels about her situation and how even though it's hard and sometimes it's really unhappy mm -hmm. she's basically allowed herself to become lost in what we can only call the 21st century American West. Hmm. I, I think it does deal with some of the economic ramifications, but in human ways. It, yeah. It's not, you know, there's not a speech about how no. uh, they're, they're taking us apart. Although she does have a moment near the end where she gets to say, why, why would I work this hard? But yeah. then she gets to visit family who is, yeah. who is, has a more conventional, mm -hmm. more financially successful life. And they, they're being really judged and he gets to put it on the place. A little, but a it's little. not very heavy-handed. It's not heavy-handed, and it comes at a point where we've we felt the outrage ourselves, yeah. and we got we actually got to experience a lot of the injustice that sort of leads to this now entire culture of people mm. who who are nomads. They live on the road, yeah. And uh, there's a really penetrating shot where we get to see her old house. Nobody's living there anymore. There's no reason nobody's it, living there. It's anymore. still a house. You it's could still totally house, yeah. still live there. The only reason she's not living there is because she's not allowed to. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's the that's the old. It's like, why do we have it? It almost felt like um, it's like a much more graceful, much more uh, emotion, like less emotionally manipulative version of that film. Into the Wild, a film I like actually, I the Sean Penn movie one, yeah. from uh, two thousand seven. 
which is a true story of a guy uh, named Christopher McCandless who just left everything behind and lived on the road and how and Sean Penn shoots it as if that's not necessarily noble, but it's more admirable and a, a better goal. Yeah, there's a Walden-esque purity yeah, to it. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, there's none of that sort of wistful purity to something like Nomadland. I don't. I don't entirely agree with that. Right. I do think that there is. I mean, it's it's not. It's definitely again. It's have, mm. no one could accuse this movie of being heavy-handed. I think, but I do think that there is a patina, if you will, okay, of romanticism over Frances McDormand's insistence that her existence has dignity, mm. uh, and which is not to say that it doesn't, but her absolute commitment to only living this way mm. when it involves eschewing personal connection um it's hard not to treat the movie's portrayal of that as something that is distinctly and almost uniquely noble mm. for me and there's something about that that i don't know i wouldn't I think I, 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 I wasn't necessarily brought on board with it. I think that there's something about it that feels more tragic than that. And I don't feel that I, I think that I don't know. I guess I never quite bought that. I never quite the movie never quite sold me on that element. I think what what you're talking about, I think a lot of that mm. is covered by Frances McDormand's performance. I yeah. love her performance in this movie yeah. because she brings so much humanity to it. She's she's really just inhabiting this. She's thing. great. She's an amazing. She's, she's one of the great and, actors. Uh, let's just call it like, like what it is. Like yeah. she she plays this natural in a way that I think I've seen her really reach before. This mm. is like her going to new territory because she's playing mm. such a real character. Uh, I, well, she's she's not like I've seen she's her not play like hindered by incident the way other movies like will demand. Yeah, exactly. Her to be. She just gets so to be. She she yeah. and uh, she yeah is just really sort of inhabiting this space, and we get to see how fun this is. We get to see how hard this is. We get to see how uh, how easy it is. We get to see how difficult it is. We get to he- feel every bit of frustration when David Strathairn comes over and breaks a dish. Because dishes oh. are like such valuable well, commodities. Well, and specifically, those dishes were like the only thing like her dad gave to her, yeah, and she was like, like one of the few, is... one of the few possessions she had that she actually valued. Mm. And he was trying to be kind; he was just picking up boxes and trying to be helpful. He's clearly like into yeah. her, but in not not in a forceful way. Just like I'm, just I'm nice and I like and, you. And, and we're gonna run into each other again if yeah. we're running in the same circle. Yeah, and then he breaks all her dishes, and it's just she just looks at him. And she's and goes, like, just go, just go, just go. Yeah. <laughs> You don't so be mad about all, it. Yeah, I fucking do. Get the all fuck of out. the nobility and all of the indignity, all yeah. of all of the pain and all of the hardship, all comes through Francis McDormand. I get that. I get that her character is nobility. Mm. I'm just not sure about that the situation does because mm. the situation just feels so unjust. Mm. And there's something about that that I don't know. I never quite got on the movie's wavelength. Uh-huh. Um, that's not to say it's a bad movie. It's a very very good movie, but I don't think it connected with me the way other people did. Mm. Um, at least other people seem to. Okay. Um, so I don't know if it's gonna. I don't think it's gonna make my best of the year list. I'm, I'm only explaining why that is. I'm not <laughs> okay. Actually, I'm not actually critiquing the movie. I'm just saying mm-hmm. on a personal level, it never quite sold me on its. Uh, its central theme, its idea. I guess. Yeah. Right. I, I never quite believed it myself. Okay. Even for the purpose of the movie, but I believe that the characters did, and I was very interested in them. And I think it's a very wonderfully crafted film. So it's an excellent movie. At the end of the episode, I'll be giving it a C plus. I'm just explaining why it's not going to be on my best of the year list. Yeah, well, I mean, we we are deliberately catching up with a lot of these films that are called the best of the year. So yeah. the, 
it, it's the chances are better that we'll we'll kind of dig some of these ones. There's a decent chance, yeah. yeah. Um, but you know, you never you never quite yeah. know. Uh, tell me about something else. Something else. I don't know what. <laughs> How about I tell you about uh, never, rarely, sometimes, always? I don't um, know why not. <laughs> never, rarely, sometimes, always is. Um, the second film I've seen this year that is on HBO Max, which is about a, a pair of teenage girls who have to travel across state lines to get one of them an abortion. However, this the one other wasn't one, exclusively for HBO Max. No, the uh, the first one I saw was Unpregnant, and uh, that one was exclusively for HBO Max, and that was a wacky road trip movie. <laughs> this is the opposite of that. <laughs> this is actually a very... Uh, sensitive knowing drama about the difficulties of being a teenage girl and needing to leave your comfort zone to get an abortion and how difficult that is in the modern world. And also how uh, it takes us through way better than, you know, unpregnant is just about getting to a location. This is about every single step of the way. Mm. And uh, how about these two girls, their cousins, uh, they work at a grocery store one of them is pregnant. She's very bitter about that. Uh, and she needs to arrange this. The characters don't speak a lot, but we understand them through like little things. And we understand how hard their life is. They don't just work at grocery stores, but uh, there's a scene early on where they have to pass their cash drawers, like through this little window. Yeah. And uh, she passes her cash through the window and then her, her cousin passes the cash through the window. And the guy on the other side kisses her hand and she's completely, it's disgusting. Yeah. It's a total violation. And and she's completely grossed out. And all of this horrendous unwanted male attention is like a wed, wed late, a lead weight on the shoulders of these two characters. And their place in the world as they are perceived by the men around them uh, just makes them feel all the more isolated when they have to do something that is uh, just for her. That is just for the the main character. Uh, let me look up the name of the, the two lead actresses because they both deserve uh, a lot of credit. Uh, Sydney Flanagan uh, plays the main character and uh, Talia Ryder plays the cousin character. And they have to go into New York City to find an abortion clinic. And I'm not sure if you've ever traveled, but this one really, really vividly captures what it's like to sit around a lot while you're waiting for shit to happen. Yeah. They have nowhere to go. They have nowhere to sleep. So most, they have to most, like, most stay travel in movies them. don't want to talk about that. No, they want to so talk they, about all the, all the fun incidents that happen. They don't have a lot of money. So it's like, oh, what, where do we go? We go into a baker and we get a bun and we sit on a bench and we eat it. And then we have to rest here for a few minutes, but we have to essentially stay up all night because we have no place to sleep. And, uh, the abortion process is a little bit more complicated than they think it's going to be. And, the title comes from uh, a quiz that the main character has to take uh, on the event of getting an abortion about sort of her state of mind. They want to make sure she's okay. And they ask her things like, uh, is somebody coercing you? Uh, do you always get along with your with the father? Never, rarely, sometimes, always. Uh, is your father abusive? Never, rarely, sometimes, always. And her answers or non-answers in that sequence will rip your fucking heart out. Yeah, uh, this is an in, just a, a, an emotionally difficult and incredibly touching movie, oh, wow. and I think it's very wise to tell a story like this using nothing but uh, quiet moments, difficult real world struggles, and completely naturalistic filmmaking. 
because all of a sudden we are uh, a lot more sympathetic to the plight of these people. Unpregnant takes a difficult issue and turns it into a wild comedy. The point is still in that movie, and that's actually a pretty enjoyable film, but it is very artificial. Mm. This is not. This is very real, and uh, I understand why it's getting all the acclaim that it's getting. All right. Um, why don't you take one more in a row okay. to get us back on? We'll finally I'll, be on an even keel. Do I have three left. I, I can talk about the assistant, beanpole, or sound of metal. What do you want me to talk about? No, next? Let's talk about the assistant. All right. Uh, the assistant. Uh, I I I know it's a uh, poor form to quote other critics, but uh, Alonzo Duralde described this one as uh, Jean Dielman versus uh, Harvey Weinstein. Uh, because a lot of the assistant takes place in uh, in an office, and I'm not sure if you've ever worked an office job. I have. Uh, I, I think a lot of people have, especially a lot of people in Los Angeles. But all of the details of setting up a coffee machine, eating Fruit Loops really fast before other people come into the office, right. uh, ripping open the pallet of bottled water and arranging them in uh, in the fridge, all of that stuff. All of those details are so accurate that I could smell this movie. I could smell the toner. I could smell the dirty carpets. I could smell the pencil shavings. This is the least glamorous depiction of L.A. showbiz office life than you could that you could ever imagine. And uh, the main character is the assistant to, and uh, she's played by uh, Julia Garner. Mm, great actor. Uh, she is the assistant to some big producer, Muckety Muck, who we never see. He's always on the other side of a door. Mm. We hear him yelling over a phone, but we only kind of hear words. We get to hear her uh, do things like make up little lies to tell his wife. So she kind of covers for him. Uh, she finds an earring on the ground and she's instructed to return it. And when she returns it to somebody, they're really, really distraught. She has to do things like, a young actress is coming in from out of town. Can you put her up in a hotel? Can you arrange for the producer to meet her at that hotel? And we learn very quickly, and because we know exactly what the fuck is going on, that this guy is a serial sexual abuser. And all of the people in the office know it, and it's their job to kind of cover for it. And they know what kind of language to use. Uh, she Ugh. gets berated a few times, and she gets... Uh, advice from the people who have worked in the office longer than her, like how to word the email to oh. apologize just correctly. God. And it is about this hellish black hole of moral depravity that she has unwittingly found herself in the center of and seems completely powerless to change. That I'm going to mm. say this right now. Mm. It, it sounds like it's really good. It sounds like it's really it's, powerful. It's, it's fucking great is what it is. It sounds like something I really don't want to know. <laughs> it doesn't sound like a place I want to visit. It's, it's infuriating. Yeah. Uh, and, and uh, you know, it's it's might be easier to stomach because we know what happened to Harvey Weinstein. We mm. got him. Yeah. Uh, but well, we got that one. We got, but yeah, I was going to say, we got one. This yeah. is, this is. Co common and pervasive we are we learned over the last couple of years well I, like we always knew but it was one of those mm. open secrets now we're finally fucking talking about it which is nice yeah uh but yeah this is a, a, like a vivid uh from the ground view of somebody who is indirectly involved with a lot of this stuff and the moral quandary she finds herself in and and even if she uh had the clout and the power and the strength to really stand up to this, 
it might not do any good. And there yeah. is a there is a visit to HR. And I'm gonna if you're gonna watch the movie, I'll let you discover what happens when she visits HR. Uh, but ultimately, yeah, this film is really harrowing. It's really frustrating, and it's kind of astonishing how harrowing it is, given how dull it looks. And mm. that's by design. Uh, the, the filmmaker is named uh, Kitty Green, and uh, she's an editor and a producer from Australia, and. Uh, yeah, she really knows her, uh, just banal office life really, really well. And, uh, I, I find it kind of astonishing that this much hellish, brackish horror can be found in such boring visuals. Uh, yeah, it's, it's really, really good. Well, I think boring visuals, people underestimate the power that they can have to, and I, lure I use, us into a yeah. place of security. And, and I want to I want to to say I'm using boring merely as a descriptor yeah. and, and not as as a value judgment. No, no, no. Like there's a lot of really incredible movies mm. where the cinematography is not at least not outwardly like not to the naked eye remarkable. Mm. Um, and I think people assume that in order for a movie to be good, every shot has to look amazing, and I think that's a fallacy. Mm. And there's a lot of really really great movies which are either deceptively filmed where there's actually a lot going on but you're not necessarily thinking about it mm-hmm. or they're just really straightforward and what matters is the content and the straightforward filmmaking is actually very very effective in luring you into a yeah. sense of reality yeah because yeah. in reality we don't see in dynamic compositions all the time we see what mm-hmm. we see and we just deal with yeah. it because those that's our eyes yeah. so uh, so so that that's not that that can be a total compliment actually mm-hmm. to say a movie is. is... But there, there's also uh, if if you think about the movie The Big Sick, if you remember how that yeah. that that film was shot, uh, that takes place a, a lot of it takes place in like apartments and hallways, yeah. and that one actually is not very graceful about using its banal settings to artistic effect. It's just filming a dumpy apartment, and it just doesn't I, look good. I, I disagree. I, I, I love that. I love the the, the screenplay and the performances in that movie are brilliant. I but I think a lot. I think it's it could for. be better photographed, perhaps. I think that movie's. I think that movie's better filmed than you're giving it credit for. But fair enough. Um, all right, let's do a major shift in tone. Okay. Do you want to talk about the underwater monster movie? Or the werewolf serial killer movie. <laughs> Tell me about the underwater monster movie because I saw this at the beginning of the okay, year. Okay, so uh, a movie I missed at the beginning of the year that um, there were two takes on the movie Underwater. Mm. One was, eh. <laughs> and the other, which I kept hearing from the horror community, is, okay, seriously, this might be fucking brilliant. <laughs> this is That's actually it. a truly fucking amazing horror movie, and everyone needs to go fucking see this thing. So I felt bad that I missed it in theaters and I always kept meaning to get around to it. And then finally, earlier this week, I finally saw Underwater. And my response, as someone who loves the horror genre, someone who loves underwater monster movies, someone who uh, uh, is absolutely, totally on board with the kind of movie this is trying to be. It's uh, it's an alien knockoff. It is and it isn't. Mm -hmm. It's um, it's actually it's a couple of things. It's a disaster movie underwater. There's a it's in the near future, and they are drilling deep into the Marianas Trench, uh, which is very deep. Look it up. It's the deepest part of the planet. Yeah, and uh, the pressure down there is unthinkable. 
there are uh, types of oceanic life that have evolved in a, to live without light, uh, which are absolutely astounding to even conceive. And the little that we have discovered down there is really weird, and you should totally look it up, and it's a fascinating uh, part of the world. The movie opens with Kristen Stewart. Uh, she brushing is, her teeth. She is brushing her teeth, and she is thinking about themes that the movie has literally no interest in exploring, but they will be brought up at the end as if we did. And uh, they, they they barely bring it up. There's no, no setup not, before the explosion this happens. Vague attempt to make this movie, <laughs> which is just pure incident, mm. make it seem like it had a point. It does not. And no, if it does, no, the no. point is actually pretty irresponsible, I think. So I'm just going to give it the benefit of the doubt and say it's perfunctory and added after the fact, and it has no point. No, and they, that, can, that can be fine. They, they, want, they wanted something to make it look like a real movie, yeah. and it, frankly, it's, it wasn't needed. No, no, no. So, But I, one thing I love about this movie is how fast it fucking gets started. Oh, yeah. It's not fucking around. It's like 30 seconds in, you're like, going. Like, there's a minor monologue about living cynically or whatever, and then uh, she sees, like, a daddy long legs in the bathroom, and I thought maybe this was going to be a subtle thing because you realize that, A there should be no bugs in this secure environment. So if there's a spider, that means that there are other pests to kill and maybe we're going to deal with something and nope, shit gets ruptured within <laughs> one fucking minute. Things start imploding. She's got to run down hallways. She's trying to save people. People die. Their heads explode from the pressure. She's like, oh, it's TJ Miller. Oh, shit. He's going to be in this a lot, isn't he? He actually is in a lot of them. Yeah, Shit. I'm not going to ruin your day, but look it up. Uh, so, <laughs> so well, what can you do? So, uh, but then they put on their big fucking underwater space suits that come right out of Warhammer Warhammer 40k, which are just like, <laughs> and they and they're walking around in these things like yeah, da, 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 and I'm like, I'm sorry, that shit would be 75 fucking pounds minimum like per square inch and yeah. a lot of you people are really thin this would be a really rough walk i'm sure in the water it would be fun because that's the whole point but y'all are just like fucking running down hallways and this shit and no <laughs> no is my answer uh, it's science fiction fantasy I, stuff but again again there's nothing else to distract me okay. all the character work in this is actually kind of annoyingly perfunctory it's like every mm -hmm. time there's like a dip in the action someone will say something like Ah, oh, you know, backstory, 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 backstory. I'm the funny one. And I'm like, fucking, really? Really? We, we can't do better uh -huh. than that? This is, like, really not not great. And so um, it basically ends up disaster movie, disaster movie, disaster movie. And then finally they have to do a variety of, like, walks underwater, like space walks, but underwater from, like, one space, uh, one water station to another. And that's when they start noticing that there are sea monsters, Fishmen. There are fishmen. There's fishmen around. <laughs> and it gets more and more elaborate. And I will say this much. Those are some fucking cool fishmen. I love the fishmen. Fishmen are fucking cool. Yeah, they, the fishmen are fucking cool. The thing I didn't like was the uh, the underwater photography. They're trying to keep things like sort of in the murky shadows. But yeah. There's a difference between keeping things in the murky shadows and then me just sitting in a theater watching a bunch of movement and nothing, and I can't see anything on screen. My, I think my favorite version of that was actually the movie uh, 47 Meters Down. Yeah, where they, they, they knew how to, to shoot things clearly when yeah. we needed to see them. There's this incredible, 47 Meters Down, if you missed it, and it did okay, but a lot of people didn't see it. Um, it's about uh, two young tourists 
who go down in a shark cage off the coast of Mexico and they chum the waters to get as many sharks as possible down there so they'll see all the sharks. Uh, but then it's a rickety ass boat and the cage falls down 47 meters down to the bottom mm. of uh, the ocean floor. And uh, now they're trapped down there and they're going to run out of, of air unless they find a way to swim to the surface. But uh, they chum the waters and it's filled with man-eating sharks. It's a fucked up situation. And there's some really great use See. of undersea photography. There's this incredible bit where one of them actually tries to swim for it and they run into basically a trench mm. and it becomes this infinite void and it scared the shit out of me. <laughs> Just the idea of that much emptiness that and chasm. darkness. Yeah, yeah. And who knows what kind of monster is five feet in front of your face, but you can't see them because it's pitch dark. Absolutely terrifying. Like, it's actually like, I, I, I wish theaters were open so you could just see that in theaters. Because that movie is great in theaters. It's okay at home. Um, and Underwater might benefit from that as well. For all I know, I saw it at home. And that's where most people will right. see most movies until the end of days. Regardless of whether or not theaters come back with uh, with a vengeance. That's just how it is. They play in theaters for a little bit. Every once in a while they'll play in a midnight screening somewhere. Or at some sort of revival for a night. But 99.9% .9 of the time people see a movie is after it's theatrical run. And they're watching it on home video. So it's got to work that way. And without the spectacle. Without uh, you know the sound design to really grab me. Uh, this movie is just a straight line. It is a straight line of there's some good production design. There's some good visual effects. The monsters are really, really cool. I like Kristen Stewart. Kristen Stewart's good in everything. She's got very little to work with here, but her job is to be such a good actor that we're grounded and that we care. And she does that. Mm. Um, there's some good supporting performances. Um, oh, who's the French actor in this? Um, uh, it's not not Matthew uh, Amalric, is it? It's, no, no, uh, no, 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 no. It's uh, uh, what is Vincent Cassell. Vincent Cassell. Vincent Cassell is in this, and I think so he's a really underappreciated Black, Black actor. Black Swan dude, that guy. Yeah, he's a really underappreciated actor. I think he's really excellent in this. Um, he doesn't have a lot to do, but he brings what he needs to bring. Um, but um, yeah, unfortunately, this ultimately feels more like a genre exercise that evokes some other things that I think people get really excited about, but it doesn't do anything with them. It doesn't mm -hmm. answer any of the questions with them. It just has them there as window dressing, mm -hmm. and... It's okay. I, yeah, I didn't I'd, hate I'd, watching it. It's, it's far from the worst underwater like monster movie I've ever seen, but not very good. And I, I, I thought it was fine. I, I I have no problems with a straight line. If, if you're going to yeah. tell me just a straight up monster movie, oh, it's fine. It's just trim like, off all the fat. You got a nice, quick, little, efficient, entertaining with thing with some monsters. I, in it. And I appreciate some actors that. that I like. Some you know enough character to get me along. I'm never going to see this movie again. That's what it boils okay. down to. Like I no, nothing in this movie made me go. Oh, I'll see that again someday. Like no, I'd, I'm like I'd, I'd like I to get watch it. it I'm uh, done. Thank I'd love to you. watch it back to back with Sea Fever, which also came out this year. Sea Fever was good. Mm -hmm. I like Sea Fever. Um, so yeah, underwater. I, I get why people like it, and I don't. I don't hate it. Mm. And I'm actually debating whether I'm going to give it a C or a C minus at the end of this episode. Uh, but this was not this miracle movie everyone was like telling me. No, it was. Uh, it was just kind of mm. fine. Um, probably would have played better in a theater. That's all I can say. Uh, moving on. What do you want to talk about next? Uh, I'll tell you about Sound of Metal. Okay. Sound of Metal uh, is about a drummer in a metal band. He's played by Riz Ahmed. Uh, and he is uh, 
typical metal musician. He's got a lot of tats. He plays a lot of gigs. Uh, he's dating the lead singer, uh, and they travel around and talk about like nihilistic stuff. Like, man, how how would you like to be buried? And, and but that's like kind of the warm way they uh, they yeah. communicate. And uh, at one of their gigs, while they're setting up the merch table, rather unexpectedly and completely out of the blue, he goes deaf. Completely and all at once. Uh, not completely and all at once, but mostly just all of a sudden loses like 80% of his hearing in a moment. Wow. And uh, he goes to the doctor. He's really concerned because he's a musician. He needs to be, be able to hear the music. And he thinks that this is a temporary thing. What happened? What happened to you? And he's like, well, you know, you're a metal musician. You've been abusing your ears with all this uh, metal noise. You're deaf now. Yeah. There's no going back. Uh, and she's like, oh, well, well, what can you do? It's like, well, I, I suppose you could get one of those implants that would bring back some of your hearing. But what you need to do is start learning how to be deaf. And he is completely resistant in it. In fact, throughout most of this movie is in complete denial. It's like, no, this is going to I'm going to get better. This is going to get back, going to come back. His girlfriend ends up taking him to a special uh, therapy camp for deaf people who have just lost their hearing and who are learning to sign and learning to live without a sense that they have just recently lost. And it is about trying to make him understand that his life isn't over. He's lost a sense. His life will change. But this is not sort of the the doom scenario that he's imagining. And yet he keeps on insisting that it is. And there's a moment where it looks like he's teetering into accepting his new life. And indeed, uh, at this camp, everybody has an assignment for the day, and his is learn to be deaf. Yeah. And he has to start learning sign language, and he starts playing with uh, the deaf kids who are at the camp because mm. he, he doesn't know any sign. He's kind of like learning a language for the first time. Yeah. Uh, and it's hard when you're mm, older because like mm. your brain is kind of solidified in yeah, some ways, and but, uh, you want to reject having to talk like a child. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but, language, but Riz Ahmed is so uh, he, he gives a really good performance in this one because you get to see how conflicted he is about accepting this this new part of himself and how uh, he is really, really determined to have a scheme. And that's a very male thing. You got to yeah. have a, a solution to this problem. Yeah. And I'm going to do this and I'm going to do these steps and everything's going to be better once I take care of everything without really realizing that that's not what his life needs right now. It's not what the world needs from him right now. And mm -hmm. when I say the world, I mean, eventually he does go out into the world and reconnect with some of the characters we met earlier in the movie. And we get to see that their lives are actually a lot more complex and richer than he ever assumed. And how, uh, he gets to sort of more closely appreciate that the world is more complicated than a metal song. Metal songs are easy to get your head around. They're about death and destruction. Mm -hmm. What happens when you're a nihilist and you start believing in something? That's what kind of is floating around underneath Sound of Metal. It's a really good perform, a Sounds really good, good performance in the middle of a pretty good movie. Uh, it's yeah about uh, disability and therapy and. Uh, it's a, it's a very positive film, and I really appreciate that. Well, it sounds really really good. Yeah, I liked I liked Sound of Metal. Cool. Mm -hmm. All right, uh, my last film for the week uh, is another horror movie. This is another horror movie that a lot of people told me um, was right up my alley, and okay. uh, so please please promise me you'll see The Wolf of Snow Hollow before the end of the year. And so I did. The Wolf of Snow Hollow is uh, a horror comedy. 
without that pesky comedy bit. Uh, <laughs> it's just not funny. It's not. It, I think I laughed once. I, I get it's quirky in that Fargo kind of way, but it never really seems funny because ultimately the way that it portrays its story emphasizes um, anxiety okay. and real human tragedy in a way that just keeps the comedy from feeling funny. Mm. It ends up feeling just tragic, but not in like a way that feels intended, in a way that feels kind of accidental in some respects. Um, Jim Cummings wrote and directed this. He also stars uh, as Jim, a... Jim Cummings the voice actor? Uh, I don't think... I think he's a producer, actually. Hmm. Uh, yeah, uh, but, uh, he starts as, he's a, a relatively young sheriff's deputy. His dad is still the sheriff. He's played by Rob Forster in what I believe is officially his final performance. Uh, Rob Forster has heart trouble and refuses to quit, even though he clearly just can't do it anymore. And mm. it's not, it's not, mentally, maybe he could, but physically just like having like a meeting in the morning is almost too much for him. Okay. So he just he but he refuses to give up give up. Um it's a very very small like skiing town in the Midwest somewhere at the I think oh it's Utah actually. It's Utah specifically. Uh and uh at the beginning of the movie, uh two vacationers have a cabin and they have a small kind of not very consequential altercation with some of the locals. And then that night, one of the, the, the woman is horrifically slaughtered. Jeez. Okay. Like the brutalized and torn to shreds. And there is a lot of debate over whether it is the work of it's a savage murder or it's an atypical, uh, uh, animal attack of some kind. Mm. Uh, and, uh, well, the title kind of gives that away. Well, there you go. Um, but, um, yeah, and over the course of months, uh, they find that every full moon, someone is brutally, horrifically slain and torn to shreds. And it's always, or almost always a woman. Mm. And uh, they begin to think that there is a serial killer about, and people start talking about it as if it's a werewolf, either because it makes for good newspaper copy or because they're just starting to believe in the damn thing. Uh, that's a great setup for a story. Mm. Uh, it's been done, but it's good. You know, it's a, it's an effective uh, use of the werewolf myth. Mm. It's an effective uh, uh, small town story. We, we talk a lot about small town uh, type cinema, wherever they're full of quirky characters and they got their own mm. personality as a community, and that can be really really fun too. Um, the problem is that uh, Jim Cummings, as a, the character he plays, mm. um, is so unbelievably stressed out by everything <laughs> and i'm sympathetic with that i suffer from anxiety too and i also stress out about everything but he does so in a way that quickly and almost immediately loses him all sympathy mm. he's just a pain to be around and he isn't fully wrestling with the fact that the police that he's working with and including himself mm. they're bad cops Okay. Either because they're incompetent or because they very casually abuse their power. Mm. And the movie doesn't seem to understand or wrestle with that. Um, he's a bad father. He's a startling alcoholic, which, you know, is not in and of itself make him a bad person. But uh, it just complicates the issue and centers this whole thing as 
a nervous breakdown movie that is oh. being rudely interrupted every once in a while by a more interesting hmm. werewolf film. Um, there are some editing choices in this movie that are absolutely baffling to me. <laughs> like, absolutely fucking bad. We'll see, like, a scene of a woman, like, walking to her. We met her for a few scenes. We got to know her. We like her. We realize she's probably the next victim. She's walking to her car, and then she is about to be attacked. And then we cut to the next morning, where the sheriff is having, he's meeting with his ex-wife, who they hate each other, and doesn't make him look very good in this scene, and he's going to be taking care of uh, his daughter for a while, for reasons which the movie doesn't even bother explaining. Um, and then halfway through that scene, uh, we just cut back to the murder last night. The lighting is obviously completely different, and the ed- the implication of the editing, as we would see from the editing sort of language of cinema that we understand, uh, is that these things are being intercut and happening at the same time. But they're clearly not. And it's just confusing it's odd, to watch, yeah. and there doesn't seem to be any meaningful point to it other than we wanted to vividly show more slaughter. Okay. But for which pacing reasons, yeah. which is a choice, uh, but for pacing reasons, we thought we needed to put some dialogue in there and intercut it, but we had nothing happening concurrently to intercut it with. So we're just going to concu- intercut it with something that happens later, even though the intercutting no longer makes sense. Mm-hmm. And then they do this again later with like various montages of like the aftermath of murders, and we're intercutting it with the murder that's happening. And it's just nonsensical. Mm-hmm. It feels like the kind of experiment you do in film school to see how it plays. And then you realize that doesn't play. I need to edit out that scene oh, or just make the first scene longer. So it's not even basically competent. As well, what you're parts saying. of it are, though. That's mm. the thing. It's frustrating. It's actually really beautifully photographed by a cinematographer named Natalie Kingston. Uh, the snow cinematography in this movie is really quite gorgeous. Um, it's very evocative. It's very moody. Uh, if you've ever been in a snowy town in the middle of the night when it's not snowing or it's snowing only very very lightly and you realize that there's a starkness to this that isn't necessarily being captured by these like beautiful christmas movies that want to show you how wonderful everything is it's actually just wet and sludgy icy and and dead Mm. and there's something that that this movie really captures and it's really beautifully photographed i think there's some good performances in this movie uh ricky lindholm is in this movie i think she's an underrated actor um and uh she plays uh one of the sheriff's deputies who uh, there's this really great bit where um, Jim Cummings has been doing research. He's, he's at the end of his rope and he's finally saying, fuck it, I'll research werewolves. And so he's researching werewolves and he's realizing that so much of the werewolf myth is stemming, according to him. And there's there's more complicated history to this, but uh, from uh, women who were brutally murdered. Mm-hmm. And they were murdered so brutally that the people who found the body cannot imagine a human being doing it. Mm-hmm. And indeed, they probably only happened and a full moon because that's when it's bright enough at night to see clearly enough to attack someone like that. And he's in this moment where he's just like, God, do you think women have been dealing with this kind of stuff since the middle ages? And Ricky Lindholm just gives him this withering look (laughs) where it's just like, yeah, motherfucker. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, It's a fucking thing. Do you think that? Yeah. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Um, it's pretty funny. Yeah, so it's not a complete wash. It just, it doesn't come together. The focus is so much on this guy who is just, 
again, I, I, I think the emphasis is wrong. I think the emphasis is completely on this guy's nervous breakdown and not on the more compelling story, not on the more compelling characters, not on the thing as an ensemble, mm-hmm. but more on a, oh, isn't it tragic that this guy is being really terrible to people because he doesn't know how to handle his anxiety and stress and his mm-hmm. job. And I'm like, kind of, yeah, but you're not actually framing it very well and the other elements of the story aren't supporting it. They're kind of doing their own thing. So, alas, not a great werewolf movie. I was hoping it was. I'd heard good things, but yeah. it just it is what it is, and it isn't particularly good to me. But I do see what other people like werewolf. about it. It just they don't think it works. Werewolves continue to have a bad track record. It's it's hard to make a good werewolf movie. I don't know why it's hard, but apparently it's really fucking hard. Given how few great werewolf movies there are, the it must bar's be incredibly pretty difficult. low for a good werewolf movie, and um. And I think, again, a lot of the problem is that the idea of the werewolf, the monster inside you mm. uh, kind of narrative, has kind of been taken over by serial killer stories. Yeah. Uh, I think I think if you look at most serial killer movies that Hollywood makes, like, like the good ones, a lot of them could, with just a little bit of spit and polish, be turned into werewolf movies very easily. There's not going... They don't need to go there because serial killers mm. are real. Yeah. So you don't need to fancify them. Uh, but, uh, yeah, and for whatever reason, just not a lot of good werewolf movies. It sucks. Um, all right. And then uh, let's finish it off with Beanpole. Uh, Beanpole. Um, I, I feel like I'm at a little bit of a disadvantage with Beanpole because I only watched it today. And this is one I want to digest Okay, because this film is amazing. Wow. Um, it takes place. It's a Russian film. It takes place, uh, in Leningrad, uh, right after world war two. And it is about, uh, it takes place in a trauma hospital where soldier, injured soldiers have gone, uh, some cases to convalesce, some cases to essentially just, there's not like a lot of concern about their mental well-being. So mm-hmm. it's about essentially a place where they can allow their, uh, their trauma to fester. Yeah. And it uh, it follows two uh, nurses who work there. Uh, one is has been nicknamed Beanpole because she's very, very tall. And the other one uh, previously worked as... Well, I'm not going to say what she worked as because it's a little bit of a surprise. Okay. But she, she has a bit of a past. Uh, the Beanpole is looking after her friend's son. And uh, early on... And the son is... Uh, spending time in this hospital and is being entertained by a lot of, of the, the people who live there. And we get a sense of how desperate things are when they're entertaining this kid. He's like three by making animal noises. And they ask him, Hey, can you bark like a dog? And they realize he's never heard a dog barking because all of the dogs in the neighborhood have been eaten. People are that impoverished and starving. Uh, And it's sort of about how this kind of atmosphere of, Trauma and post post war trauma and misery is giving birth to this very uh, lively desperation for contact, and how these people are trying to come to terms with the fact that the state and the war machine, through echoes through you know years beyond the actual event, have now turned them into these kind of wasted commodities. Uh, for the men it was in some cases their literal limbs and for the women it was in this protracted way their sexuality and this is a film that deals a lot with uh, with sex and pregnancy and a lot of the 
more uncomfortable aspects that come from the relationships that grow. I feel like my description isn't doing this a lot of good service though, which is why I said I needed to ruminate on this one Hmm. a lot more because uh, this is a very uh, vibrant, uh, disgusting, elating kind of movie where we're trying to get a full experience of not just the pain and the misery, not the psychology of it, but the emotional experience of it and how it, your mind can make things feel kind of inconsistent and strange and almost surreal sometimes because you're a human being and your emotions don't follow rules. Uh, it, it, the story goes in some pretty harrowing spaces. Eventually, uh, one nurse will ask the other to have a child for reasons I don't want to reveal, but there is a, a gigantic horrendous accident uh, at some point along the way, which inspires a lot of these bizarre uh, exchanges. A lot of the exchanges happen without any dialogue. There's just a lot of closeness and a lot of physical contact that is dictating a lot of what's going on in the scene. Um Golly, what a wonderfully complex film. What yeah. a difficult film. What a what a hard, gross, beautiful thing. It sounds like mm-hmm. I, I actually, uh, it's a feeling I know all too well, where mm-hmm. a lot of our job as uh, film critics, really any art critic, mm-hmm. uh, is to translate an experience from one medium to another. Yeah. So we saw, we, you, mm-hmm. we heard a record, or we saw a painting, or we saw a movie, and you didn't or maybe you didn't get to see it the way we did or whatever and so we're trying to explain using different language either whether it's the language of conversation or the written word which is similar but not the same uh and we need to try to capture that experience and hand it to you in a shortened form so that you understand what it was the greek term is ekphrasis really yeah i didn't actually know that oh that's great there's a word for it how do you spell that? E K P H R A S I S. Totally right in that. Shit. <laughs> I'm gonna tattoo that on my neck. Ekphrasis. <laughs> yeah. Love it. Um, it, it uh, using description to translate a, a yeah. complex. Experience. But that's a, that's an enormous part of what film mm. criticism is. Analysis is also part of it. But in order to convey analysis, the audience who may not necessarily have seen the thing needs to understand what it was. Yeah. And sometimes, quite often, in fact, movies are pretty easy to translate because a lot of them are trying to be easily digestible. So explaining, you know, what happened in New Mutants is not difficult. Mm. You know, it might take a few minutes, but like it, we can do it very easily. Yeah. And But there's a lot of art out there that's more complicated than that. And actually finding the most important thread and the mm. most concise way to relive that, to exercise it. <laughs> that can't possibly mm. be the right verb, but finding the right way to do it's really, really difficult. And I sympathize with your plight. Mm. And especially if you just saw it and you're still mulling it over and, yeah, you know, but the, figuring yeah, it out for yourself. There's it's, a lot of tricky. Yeah. There's a lot of big, uh, big complicated issues. Yeah. You know, apart from, uh, surrogacy and uh, bodily trauma and uh, euthanasia even comes in as part of this conversation. Uh, And a a lot, and because it's set in the Soviet union after world war two, there's definitely a political undercurrent to this and how the, uh, the horror of the state and the ripples of war can leak deeper and deeper into your mind than you think. Is it a Russian film or is it only set in Russia? It's a Russian film. Okay, cool. Interesting. All right, well, uh, that is critically acclaimed for this week. We need to do a recap, because that's a lot of movies. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, so once again, at the end of every episode, we review films on a scale. People long ago asked us, hey, would you mind putting things very concisely so, so we understand your take on it? So the scale we came up with for this show was we review films on a scale of C- minus to C+. Plus. C, just like in school, C is average. Most films are average. Some good, some bad, it averages out. C plus is above average. That means we recommend this movie Hmm. with no uncertain terms. Maybe we just simply like it. Maybe we love it. Maybe we think it's the best movie ever made. All of those get a C plus. And then C minus is below average. Everything from, generally speaking, we don't recommend Hmm. it to the worst movie ever made. So run down titles. Let's do this this fast. Do this as fast as we possibly can. And uh, let's... um, uh, we'll start with Beanpole. All right, Beanpole. Uh, C plus. Uh, one of my favorite movies this year. Wow, nice. Uh, Wolf of Snow Hollow. Uh, C minus. Not without uh, finer qualities. Good scenes. Good cinematography. But uh, it doesn't come together. The humor seems misguided, and mm. it's just kind of ultimately a harder watch than it. Yeah, needs it does, to be. doesn't sound very interesting. No, unfortunately not. Uh, Sound of Metal. Sound of Metal. C plus. Okay. Great performance. Interesting story. Uh, underwater. Uh, a C. Just a flat C. Like, okay. <laughs> um, as a genre exercise, it's kind of interesting. There's some. It's certainly easy enough to watch, mm. uh, but ultimately, it's so unambitious that it ends up being. What do you want from me? Unambitious. Like it just doesn't <laughs> doesn't amount to much. It's just kind right. of an okay watch. Uh, do you remember what your review was? What we would have given? I, it? I think you gave it a C plus. Not a hugely passionate one, but I did dig it. Okay, cool. Uh, the assistant. The assistant. C plus. Okay. Uh, that's it? No commentary? No, that, uh, C+. Plus. Zip on through. Never, rarely, sometimes, always. Also C+. Plus. Nicely done. Uh, Nomad Land. Uh, you, Dave, definitely gave this a C+. I, plus. I gave it a C+. Plus. Uh, I am going to... I can't not give it a C+, plus, but it's a somewhat dispassionate C+. Plus. Hmm. I respect it more than I like it. Okay. Uh, let's see. Uh, Swallow. Swallow. Uh, a high C. Uh, okay. I... I, um, I, th- I think it'll stick with me a little bit. Okay. Yeah, cool. I'll, I'll think about it. Okay, uh, the forty-year-old version. Uh, you would give this a C plus initially, I'm sure. I did, uh, and I'm definitely giving this a C plus. This is one of my favorite comedies in a while. This mm. is one of my favorite uh, movies about New York in a while. It's one of my favorite movies about art in a while. I think this is just a really fantastically done, uh, independently minded comedy, and I mm. hope everyone sees it. Uh, Baccarat. Baccarat C plus. Nice also one of my favorite films of this year. Awesome. Uh, what do we got here? Minari. Uh, Minari, also C+. Uh, very touching, moving, uh, very pertinent story. Okay. Very very American movie. Nicely done. Uh, okay. Uh, first Cow. What you uh, oh, first that was cow? me. That's Sorry. You, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I got all, I got all caught up uh, in, your, in listening to your wonderful voice. Uh, first Cow, C+. Uh, it's, a, it's a sweet film. It's a mild film. And yet, ironically, the thing I like most about it is that it's a heist film. Uh, but, um, yeah, it's one of those cool movies that is a whole lot of things all at once, but they all feel perfectly balanced. Okay. Yeah. And I know you give it a C plus as well. Yes, it's I really, do. really fucking good. Uh, let's see here. Uh, driveways. I gave that a C plus before. I, I also give it a C plus. I really, really loved it. Yeah. Loved it a lot. I hope more people see it. Uh, and then, uh, the big ones, uh, the new mutants. A C. Okay. I, I, I was entertained. I did not see a fiasco. Okay. It's it's small, but I appreciate a smallness, especially from like a superhero film from uh, a big studio. I, I can't I feel I I've come to the conclusion I gotta give it a C minus. Not because oh, I okay. dis not because I hate it or anything like that, just because I don't think it quite works. Mm. There are things about it that work, but I think they're overshadowed by the stuff of it that's just kind of subpar. Oh. Okay. So 
It's 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 not a hateable film. I just don't I don't really recommend it. I liked it. <laughs> All right, fine. And uh, Tenet. Tenet C minus. Big old goose egg. This yeah. the, there's nothing that works in this movie. It is it is a big big ambitious failure. I liked it. No, uh, <laughs> I, I wouldn't say I liked it per se, but I did get kind of wrapped up in it on kind of All an intellectual right. level, and there are bits that I liked. Uh, I didn't not I didn't dislike watching it, mm. uh, so I'm gonna give it a flat C. Um, it's a shame that so much effort went into something where I kind of go, eh. mm. but uh, I can't control that. All I can control is you know what I what I how I how I I can't control how I see it. I just have to tell you what it is. So all I can control is how I articulate it. Um, so that those are the films. Mm-hmm. That's uh, that's a lot of movies, and uh, this is a long episode, so we're just gonna start wrapping this thing up. Uh, thank you everybody for listening. Uh, of course, you're more than welcome to chime in the conversation. Uh, you can Twitter us. We are at Critic Acclaim as a podcast. Individually, I am at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. If you want to write in about any of the movies that we talked about or anything else we talked about or just anything at all you want to talk about, you can always email us. The address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net and we might read your email in an upcoming episode of We've got mail. And as always, we want to give a very special thank you to all of our Patreon subscribers, without whom we couldn't do this show or any of the other shows that we do. Uh, For all of our Patreon subscribers, you have the opportunity to vote for future episodes of our podcasts. You have a lot of exclusive content at all of our various tiers. Uh, We have Discord hangouts. We have commentary tracks, podcasts about Star Trek, Batman, Disney, the Oscars, and uh, maybe some more stuff besides in the future. Who knows? Um, so very special thank you to all of our patrons. And if you want to join up, once again, it's patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. There are many hours of exclusive content that will be accessible to you when you start up at any tier. Hmm. So uh, we would love to have you. Thank you so much for everyone who is already there. Um, that is it for critically acclaimed. We will be back next week with our picks for the very best films of 2020 it's a non-stop cavalcade of absolute full-throated recommendations and i cannot wait to do it so thank you everybody once again and never forget everyone's a crit i want to go to the midnight show i'm sorry what